Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. Welcome, Albert Nuremberg. Thanks for coming on my podcast. It's great to, great to, to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. We were talking off camera since we saw each other. It's been, I guess, 20 years? I don't know. Do you remember the last time we saw each other? I, I think that's about right. You know, you know, it reminds me just off the bat of, um, of uh, how people are with psychedelics this, these days. They'll say, oh, yeah, 20 years ago I used to do psychedelics <laughs> just for fun. And... Now I'm doing it kind of half seriously. That's like this podcast. <laughs> right. I used to yeah. sit around and record stuff just for fun. You know? Now it's sort of serious. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, that actually brings me to something because I, I just, that I should mention quickly is um, I just started doing this not long ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I'm a teacher at Sejap and everything. Like right. You may know I have a whole career. Yeah. And so I started doing it because I kind of thought... I think I went on John Hamer's podcast. That's yeah. Kinda, yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah, I was on John Hamer's podcast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I heard you. Um, so that kind of broke through my, um, you know, sort of stage fright, as it were. You're like, hey, that. how hard can it be? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of what I, what I got to. The second time, I kind of thought to myself, maybe I could do it. And then, you know, so I, I thought about what I would do. And so I modeled it on a few people. Maybe okay. he is one, I think, okay. because he's a local guy yeah. who kind of does it on the side. He's yeah. also a teacher. People yeah. like Sam Harris. And, Sam but, Harris, yeah. I, I interviewed him. Yeah, Really? Good. Yeah. yeah really? Good. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Before he was cool. famous. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now he's famous. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, just I wanted to tell you that it makes me think what you're saying now that like, I don't know, 25 years ago, we were drinking in the bar one night and we were talking about writing and what you do or something. Yeah. And somehow you started saying to me, you know, you could be a script writer or something. You were telling me. Yeah. I could do stuff like that. And I was like, oh, okay. This guy's yeah. full of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were half, half pissed or yeah. whatever. It was 2 o'clock in the morning at the yeah. Double Deuce. I don't know. You yeah, know? yeah. But I just I wanted to thank you for that oh, encouragement. Okay. And it was right. a nice thing of you to say. Yeah. And it's not entirely wrong. I've had yeah. a couple of articles published on Arts yeah. and Opinion, which is where this podcast is posted. So. Actually, that's a, But you know what's weird about you saying that is that um, – because my background, I should explain, it, 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 I have a background in improv. And I think it, improv came to me very early. I'll tell you this weird story that uh, when I was 16, um, uh, my uh, mother got very sick, terminally sick, and, 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 and uh, sadly and died of cancer. And I'm I was kind of cut loose. Well, yeah. part of the story was, it was okay, but I was kind of cut loose. And um, I, was, I had planned to go to university, but when that happened, I think I thought, I want to go like live. I think because I just seen my mother die, so um, I went. Uh, I ended up somehow in Calgary, Alberta, because at that time that was one place where you get jobs. And literally arrived in Calgary the day that the mayor Ralph Klein said, "There's too many. There's too many Eastern bums." 
coming to our city. And I was like, literally, the I day. can't remember that. Yes, when he came, he, he bought bus tickets yeah. for, for people from Quebec and Ontario or something. Literally, that? that was like the day yeah. I arrived. Oh my God. Okay. I arrive, and the mayor says, There's too many bums in this town. Um, just, and, just so we could explain to listeners, I think at that time, people would travel across Canada, some people getting welfare, and, and they sometimes stay on welfare in different places. And and I I think he was, re- I'm not justifying No, I gig, think it was, that was the one place where you could get jobs. There were jobs in Calgary at the time. They just, So it wasn't the welfare? It wasn't the welfare, okay, it was okay. the jobs. Because yeah, yeah. I heard that when, if you yeah. went into a welfare office in Alberta, they would give you a bus ticket. That, that, that's, that was that like came, a legendary thing where they came, I didn't to to VC or Toronto yeah, or something. Yeah, I think that like came that. a bit later. But okay, uh, anyway, sorry. It was like it. Their, yeah. their vision. It was like all the riffraff of <laughs> the country was attracted to Calgary, <laughs> and like I was. You're one of them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So anyway, sorry I interrupted. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, so I got a, yeah, I get a job in a gas station, and uh, it was my first job. I was pretty excited about it actually, but um. <laughs> Uh, but I realized I didn't have the most exciting life. You know, I had I would go wake up early, go to the gas station, pump gas all day, and go home. And you know, I just thought like, is this is this my life? And I happened to see a poster for this um, workshop called the Loose Moose Theater Company. And uh, so, uh, having nothing else to do, really, I sign up. And I literally know that. The guy who's running the workshop is the modern inventor of improv, Keith Johnstone. Wow. Wow. The people that are in this improv workshop, there's a few others that come later, are later become the kids in the hall. Mm. Um, and there are other serendipity, Albert. Other yeah. other people there that, but it's also that Keith Johnstone is a sort of unrecognized great Canadian genius that he developed a, an approach and a style of improv that was very important. Now this brings I'm looping back to my story of talking to you. Now, you don't take this the wrong way, but one of the <laughs> okay. things that I learned, what improv teaches you, is that people are more talented than we realize. Yeah. Yeah. That I, And I used to say that like, I think 90% of the people can learn can be great at improv if they took the time, uh, and, uh, and that a lot of people have incredible talents. We just live in a world which doesn't value, we, we don't need your talents that much, is part of the society we live in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know you could be a virtuoso, but you know, go back to mopping the floors because that's what that's what matters. <laughs> that's a beautiful story. I, I love that approach to people because I mean, there's as an educator, I'm constantly faced with this with similar students. Yeah. yeah, and and I'm always it's you know because most people are they can be more than they are. Mm-hmm. Right? This is kind of the Jordan Peterson message yeah. of like aspiration and, and and people should be encouraged. You were doing that with me. I, right? I have a good uh, Jordan Peterson story for you later. But you, maybe, yeah. Okay. Well, you want to tell it now? No, 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 better later. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, it's just it's just I mean you know regardless of what people think about Jordan Peterson, he's yeah. somewhat of a controversial figure, yeah. but he he does he's point. Inter- to, he's interesting. He's an interesting thinker, and he's he's really opened up some ideas of positivity that the, that there's a lot of potential in the world. Perhaps we're yeah. not tapping into, which is kind yeah. of what you're saying. I think yeah, he's saying yeah, the yeah. Same thing. yeah. We could have a you good know? Jordan Peterson conversation. Yeah, I, I think that um, he's a yeah. I won't go into it now. Okay. Like big, uh, well, why don't we just sort of start? You're, you're, I understand you to be a filmmaker and a laughologist, and I also thought writer. I had that noted down. Yeah, in my notes. yeah, yeah. I'm a writer. Yes, sure. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned that you're into hypnosis, which I had forgotten. <laughs> Uh, maybe because he hypnotized me. Right? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it is actually, weirdly enough, kind of my bread and butter more than anything else. But, it, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's what I was kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about is just your your more recent endeavors. But I want later on. I want to go back to the Oka crisis because uh, what you did there because that's 
really interesting. Uh, maybe you know. just so people don't get confused, I'll give you a kind of like, because people often ask, me, like, can you explain your bio a little bit? And because it's <laughs> confusing. So to explain that, um, I started off as a, as a reporter, a junior reporter. I was uh, uh, the editor of the McGill Daily when I was in, at McGill. Uh, but uh, I always did improv because the story I just told you at the same time. So, so um, at a pivotal moment, I split off and started an improv troupe, uh, both in New Orleans and in Montreal. They were called, it was called Theater Schmieder. And um, this, this was a time when improv was, <laughs> yeah. was a pretty new and out there thing. And so it really affected my life, though. Um, and this is where, like you, I saw that the average person is far more talented and creative than one would think. Um, I, mean, I think there, there was a guy who wrote a book called we Weapons of Mass, uh, not Weapons of Mass Destruction, Weapons of Mass Education. or something. Mm. And I forgot the name of the book, but he says, if you really look into it, genius is, is as common as dirt. <laughs> which is a really interesting view of humanity. Um, so anyways, to make a long story short, I became a reporter. Then I became, uh, I got a job at the Montreal Daily News after being in New Orleans for a while. Uh, and um, I became a columnist. And weirdly enough, I think at that time, I'll just tell you the story very quickly. All my friends, uh, when I went to live in New Orleans, all got gigs at the Montreal Daily News, like reporter jobs. And they called me up and they said, you idiot, you left town at precisely the wrong time, which is one of my talents. And, um, and they said, uh, we've all got jobs. And you, and at that time I was doing like improv on street corners in, in New, New Orleans, Orleans, New Orleans, which I loved. It was a great life, but I was not making money. And, um, so, so they, so my friends convinced me to come back to Montreal, see if I get a job at Daily News, at the Montreal Daily News. So I get back and they're like, literally they're like, all the jobs are full. There's no chance of you getting a job here. But what, there's one thing you can do. Sorry, that's that's just so ironic, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you leave when the jobs come in. You come back and they're yeah. gone. It's yeah. Like, anyway, yeah. And so they told me you can. One thing you can do is you can freelance. If you can find like a crazy story, you know that nobody else knows about, we'll we'll print it and we'll pay you per story. So being a young Turk at the time, I'm like, okay, I'll try this. I'll see if I can do it. And I became really, I'd get up in the morning, I would stomp the streets and I would just walk along and I'd be, wait a second, you know, there's a guy lying on the street corner and it doesn't make sense and he's been shot or there's some, I would just find crazy wow. story after crazy story. And so C can you just tell me like what kind of things, because when I walk down the street, I mean, I don't see dead people on the street. Like I'm wondering how you did that a little bit. I like, would just see, often I would just, just go up and talk to the people like what's going on here well, To give you an example, in the yeah. summer, when the summer one year... I walking up St. Lawrence Street, I found this weird liquid. There was a liquid that was sort of pouring along the sidewalk, it smelled incredibly bad, and uh, it seemed to have no explanation. So I do a bit of research and I find out that the putrefying garbage that has been left oh in certain parts of the city is liquefying oh and is pouring God. down the sidewalks. Wow. And is because that's a story. It's, it's that's a story. Slime, and you, literally, like I, I, you can find on the street. That's right. Yeah. I found toxic slime on the street, and so I go to my editor and I said, "I found the toxic slime," and he's like, "Great story." <laughs> now you need to find the the what's the guy in the Simpsons, the evil dude yeah. <laughs> who put it there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what's that evil guy with his you know Burns, he, Mr. Bur Burns, Mr. Burns? You need to find Mr. Burns. But it was just it, it was just that you know yeah. the whatever garbage pickup was not particularly good. The, it was 
was a hot summer or whatever it was. Anyways, but that was a, interesting. Like, okay, yeah. That, so that tells you what. But, you the, were but doing. To, yeah. to give you very precise examples, the story. The, what was interesting about the Montreal Daily News is they checked, they rated their paper every day. Rated meaning they they saw how many papers they sold. Okay, and 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 so the front page, the front page, and the big stories made a huge difference. Mm. If they had a good front page. Lots of sales, bad front page, low sales. And so uh, I would I cracked a few stories. One of them was the arrival of neo-Nazi skinheads in Montreal. Um, and I've heard so, you talking about yeah, this. So, so that's why you talk about, about this. Yeah, I mean, I literally had – it started with a really crazy experience. I was at – I forget the name of the bar, but it was a famous – was a, was the one that bar that used to be Rufus Rockhead's famous nightclub on on Craig Street or St. Antoine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, had become, you're, you're with a for, well, not the forum, the the Bell Center is now. Yeah, just yeah, just down anyway. Yeah, so so I was just there with a friend having like a kind of like I remember being like a very relaxed conversation, and there were some punk type people around. I didn't think twice about it, um, but then basically I went to the bathroom. We had this really weird experience and. As I'm leaving the bathroom, the door slams shut, like in reverse. And I'm like, what, what's going on exactly? I, it's like I was just trying to figure out, like, what's going on? And I, I, I wait a second, and I slowly go walk out, and I see there's, like, a, a, a skinhead, a bunch of skinheads standing outside. And basically, they had slammed the door, or they had tried to slam the door on my face. But I hadn't – the timing was off, and it hadn't really – I didn't know if it was me or if it was somebody else. Anyways, what happens next is – I walk past these guys and I see them walk over to a guy who's just bought the album of the band it's playing back in the days where you literally buy a vinyl album and he's bought the album. It's sitting on his, on his uh, table with his, with, with his girlfriend and, and skinhead walks over to him and says, can I get your album? And the guy being a polite guy says, sure, no problem. And skinhead literally takes his album and cracks it over his knee. Wow. All the guy does is stand up like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And immediately he gets knocked down and I saw something I'd never seen before, which is a ritual that you would only understand if you knew skinhead violence, where they basically knocked a guy down, two guys, and began kicking him in the head as hard as they could. I've seen it in movies right. where they all start stomping. Stomping. That's a, it's stomping, a thing. It's a right? cultural yeah. thing. And they often do it's, 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 it. What I found out later is it's often done in, uh, in a racist way. So it'll be, they'll go up like to a some black guy or, black guy or an yeah. Asian person. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll gang up on them. And yeah. very, before anybody knows what's happening, they, they will. It's not a fight. Surprise attack. Surprise yeah. attack. They knock yeah. you down and then they're kicking you in the head. So, of course, you can't eat. Can't even get up. You're stunned. You're usually in really bad shape. We're so, not usually ready to be attacked. Right. Like most of us are not walking around in, in right. the modern world expecting to be assaulted by many people at the same time. Right. This so. was a pivotal experience for me because I had never, I had seen skinheads around, but I'd never thought of them positively or negatively. I had no opinion about them. They were just, you know, different. Now I suddenly saw the phenomena, which I then looked up, you know, white power skinheads. And I saw that these guys wow. were, this was so their thing. Is this what, in the 1980s? Just to situate people as I think to late like, 80s, early late 90s. 80s, early 90s. Okay. So then I, then I find out that there's, it's, it's a thing that's rising in the city, that there's a, there's a, a bunch of them. They at that time they affiliated loosely with the Ku Klux Klan, you know, which is not really a Montreal thing, but they they were here, and um and that they and I saw them wow. beat up a bunch of other people. So so what I uh, did is that I was a young punk at the time. I got my hair sh cut oh. short, 
And I, I didn't quite go undercover as a neo-Nazi skinhead, but I went to all the places where <clears> they I think went. you'd have to change your name. Well, the thing is, I <laughs> never, like Nirenberg. I never like, introduced myself as... <clears throat> I'm Albert Nirenberg. Yeah. <laughs> Did I yeah, say something like, wrong? Yeah. yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so so you didn't you didn't change your identity. You just sort of went but, up but and kind of tried to hang out with them. But a little I did. Bit. I did. It wasn't the, it wasn't so hard to hang out with skinheads at the time. And so I basically shadowed the skinhead movement for a while and saw what they were doing, which was terrible. Jesus. And and then I wrote then uh, I wrote a bunch of stories for the Montreal Daily News, and the Montreal Daily News circulation went through the roof. Wow. Uh, wow. Maybe some of it for the wrong reasons, because they were like, dangerous skinhead punks attack <laughs> attack random <Yeah>. people. <laughs> it's like it's terrible. Thing. It's really awful stuff, and you're profiting from it. But on the other hand, I mean, that's what journalism is. You're supposed to inform the public. If you hadn't have written those stories, who would have – not that many people would have right. written Only the families and friends. Of that's right. That's right. And I think it was like, – it so. did a public service to warn people about this phenomena. And, the fu- and, 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 and uh, I think eventually uh, it went away. But, 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 but the, point of the point of it was was – at that time, I didn't have a job. Circulation jumped so much and that they started saying, bring us more stories like this. So I just started becoming an expert in sort of finding offbeat, unusual right, stories right. to the point where I would I was making a living. And you were writing these stories. I would write the stories okay. and they well, would send a photographer. The reason, the reason I mentioned that is that off, off – uh, microphone before I, I mentioned writer, you're like, ah, oh, I'm not really a writer. And here you are telling me you started your career basically. Oh, yeah, writer, you know, so which is interesting. It's, yeah, yeah, it's just an observation, but it's maybe you don't write so much now. It's just this weird thing, it's a more an improv thing. Improv improv trains you to be non linguistic right. uh, because you're not right. supposed to be too deep in the story. But, 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 of course, I'm a writer. Yeah, I, I, I've written. Uh, four or five screenplays I've written documentaries I've written yeah. uh, lots of articles and you know so yes I am a writer so, so. you bring this non-verbal improv approach to writing it sounds like is, is that what you're saying I'm not sure if I'm uh, basically the idea that it's, it's uh, in improv is you learn like what ha- what is happening is more important than the story right, right but but stories of course are important and 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 I also just think the culture within a culture is a little bit excessively linguistic but I, I think totally, I'm, getting, I'm totally. going on, on a bit of a tangent that's okay. Uh, that's the whole point is to explore things. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the point, so the point with the weird experience of the Montreal Daily News was that they, because I at the time had the energy to find crazy new stories every day, I eventually got hired. And the weird twist is even though I was at the bottom of the totem pole for most of my time there, they then switched around. And they made me a columnist, started once a week, twice a week. And then one day they approached me and they said, would you like to be the daily columnist for the Montreal Daily News? And I was like, sure, it's like a job. And, um, and the twist is I was the, at that time, I think it was 26, I was the youngest city columnist in all of North America. Wow, uh, so an incredible there was, accomplishment for uh, unintentional uh, and an unintentional accomplishment. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how people we can sort of back into these things. Yeah. without yes. you know, and it also That's tells a good way of yeah, it also tells me that it's it's a good idea just to kind of try doing things. I mean, just to be kind of like, hey, this might be fun, just for the fun of it. I mean, you know, and then maybe it'll lead to something. You know, so, so weird about how the universe works. I think that, that, that uh, in some of the work I do. You, we look at abundance. A lot of people think in their life, there's no, there's no wealth or abundance in my life. And you, you, I always tell people, I'm always saying the story of my life is look deeper. When you look deeper in things, you find 
things out. And I, I think that people would have said, is there, uh, are there that many weird stories in Montreal that you could actually build a newspaper on it? And I'm like, yes, I bet is. you could fill volumes. Yep. I mean, there are nearly 4 million people in the, in the Montreal area, right? Or more, actually, I think it's 4.2. That's a lot of people. As you just pointed out, individuals often have interesting stories and creativity. So, I mean, just think about the multitude of different stories that could be uncovered if you just went out and found them. Well, to give you that idea, too, is special special about Montreal is that years later, I end up working for the Montreal Gazette. I am briefly the correspondent for in New York City for the Montreal Gazette. And... Um, and I, I try to sort of, I try to sort of the same thing. Maybe I can find the craziest stories in New York and become like a columnist in New York or something like that. But what I discover is Montreal, sort of moment per moment, is far weirder than <laughs> New so York. New, wow. New York, there's weird story, there's weird news in New York, but the weird, the weird story yeah. news in New York is gory. Four people shot more, dead. More crime in, and yeah, kind of it, stuff like it's that. It's just nasty. In Montreal, it's like weird. Strange orange gas plume over <laughs> delicatessen. You know, um, uh, weird riot by people with yeah. with uh, rotisserie chicken. You know, <laughs> you know, it's, that's, that's Montreal. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, this came up a little bit in Sonny's podcast and Chris Berry. I don't know if you know Chris mm-hmm. Berry from Two Twenty Twos. Yeah. You know, he just, there's also a sort of very unusual linguistic and cultural mix in Montreal that is really unique to yeah. perhaps the world. Yes. It's, you know, it's a, what I, I like to think of it as a, you know, the French word carrefour. Yeah. Like intersection, uh, intersection of different cultures. Cause I've seen a, I've seen a map once of the, the Amerindian um, sort of nations that existed in this part of the world. And there's the Algonquin people north of the St. Lawrence River, the Iroquois Confederacy to the, and then there's another group. And it's like, it strikes me that that's where Montreal is. You've got, it's geographically situated between three nations, as it were, you know, French Canada to the east, English Canada to the west, and then the United States to the south, right? So you've got this, I think there's something to do with that that's going on. That I agree makes it you. really unusual. I, 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 I used to interpret it as like um, Montreal. Montreal oddly is a city like 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 for example you go to New York let's say like downtown Manhattan is run by the Irish you know that somebody's running the town mm-hmm. and and or is culturally dominating the town and and uh, but um, Montreal what made it weird is I think it's actually changed but when I was when I was living in Montreal nobody ran the town it wasn't an English town it was not a French town. It was depended like, what you're talking about. That's right. right? Yeah, yeah. And there's right. this middle mid zone that was like kind of a neutral area where anything goes. <laughs> no man's land. No man's yeah. land. That's right. <laughs> and the weirdness yeah. happens. Yeah. No. It's. I, I think it's a really really interesting observation. It's. It's not clear to me what you know. Because it seems like multiple cities, depending, yeah. it's, it's very, yeah. it's very segregated in a certain sort of a way. Like yeah. you could say, like the Anglophone community is sort of ghettoized in some. I don't mean yeah. ghettoized in a negative way, but just. And then you've got you know, francophones, you've got a lot of allophones, and so. Yeah. On the other hand, we are geographically proximate to one to the other. Yeah, right? it's not like it's like a hundred kilometers away to yeah. know, where the where the you know Montreal people in Montreal North or something live. Yeah. They're right there, and then yeah. there's West Mount where we are now. So, yeah. So. Oh, I mean, it's a, it's a spectacular place, but it, it's gone through, it's a city that's con- in constant transformation. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, um, that's actually something, um, just as a little bit of a teaser for a future podcast, um, before I want to move on, but is I, I'm doing a whole sort of a series on a new form of Quebec identity, which would be, um, you know, 
I think there's a place for a discussion about that now that the sovereigntist movement is sort of gradually diminishing and the former Anglo-Franco thing is really 20th century now. Yeah. Like if you're a young person, like yeah. my students, they don't, they don't care. About they that. don't understand what I'm talking about. If I bring that up, like they're like, "What's like?" They're like, "Yeah, people speak English. What's this? There's a conflict between those people. Like, what? Yeah. Are you, like, what are yeah. you talking about? You know, yeah. One time, I tried to do a thing in class like ten years ago about like the you know the and and the students were genuinely confused. Like they were wow. like they didn't understand. Wow. It was a very long article too, so they yeah. couldn't really follow it. Yeah. But um, so the but they, so they inhabit a world where where uh, Montreal, where French is all has always been relevant more or less the dominant language and, yeah. they're, and they're not French Canadians, most of them, but they speak French in their homes and with their families. Yeah. yeah. And so there's a bit of a discontinuity going on right now, with what it means, because traditionally a Quebecois would have to be a French Canadian. Yeah. And that right. is something that, I mean, you know, you and I, you were born here. I yeah. wasn't born here. I'm an adopted Quebecois. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't born here. I wasn't born here. My family was from here. So that's my, my Oh, okay. Family. Where were you born? Yes. I, 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 this is like part of my story. I don't want to, so I was I happened to be born in London. My family's from Montreal. My father, mother, all grew up here. Um, just before uh, I was born, my father got a, a job in London, Ontario, at the University of Western Ontario. Oh, okay. So, so I ended up being born in in London. My my parents didn't like Ontario. They they thought they were in some kind of penal colony. Um, <laughs> you know, because at that time Ontario it kind of is for 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 Quebecers like Anglo Quebecers. Like, like where you go, to, you know, it was not an interesting place. Yeah. Um, and so I. I grew up with it, my parents longing for Montreal and it was Montreal's this legendary okay. magical place that I would hear about and then we would go and we would summer here or spend more of our time here so I became as a kid I grew up like thinking that Montreal was the place and and so when I finally uh, um, went to school and later in my life I became mm. like this big you know Montrealer that's uh, that's that's actually the, I feel a bit of a corollary story because my mom was born in the UK, but she she immigrated with her family to to Montreal in, when she was a child, and she grew up here till she was about seventeen. And then she moved to Kingston, where I know you have connections as yeah, well, yeah. and so I have family there. And so I grew up in Toronto, but my mom, as like sort of like you, there was this presence of Montreal and the UK that she would tell me about that almost seemed sort of mystical or something. Yeah, Montreal, Montreal you know? was a magical city, but yeah. it's also it was all relative, and I actually think that unfortunately. For Montreal has gone away, and Toronto is, for example, the more interesting city now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah so? I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I grew up there, and I, I left there a long time ago. And I, I don't know if it's because of just negative experiences growing up or whatever. But I don't go there very often, and I don't, you know, I, I, I and I'm always sort of like. By the way, I'm a sort of weird expert on this topic. I made a documentary called for the CBC called "Let's All Hate Toronto," and it's about why people hate Toronto so much because <laughs> they live there, like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In my case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but actually, the, the, I just wanted to just mention this because yeah. maybe, I, like, I'm doing this whole thing. I, I, I want to sort of, and I'm going to do some of them in French. I've already done one in French with yeah. a, with a woman from Venezuela about yeah. what it means to be a Quebecois or a Canadian. Yeah, and um, so I, maybe we could do something about that. You know, I'd like I could watch your documentary, and then maybe we could talk about that sure. in a future podcast because that might yeah. be really cool. But. Okay, so to return, to, I just wanted to do, cover a couple of things yeah. before we get to the um, to the Oka thing. You're a laphologist, 
which is something that's a little bit obscure to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think most people would, you know, yeah. a friend of mine in Minneapolis, Sandy Stein, put a comment up when I said I was going to talk to you. She's like, oh, I want to get a PhD in lapology. She's kind of joking, right? There's, there should be. I mean, you can, you can, it's, it's there like, is a legitimate science called gelatology, which is the science of the study of laughter. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and there are people who are gelatologists. Now, I've met some of them. Gelatologists. So that's, that's, that's a huge humorous name yeah <laughs> anyway yeah but they are generally not humorous <laughs> they, they're not funny they're dead serious that's, that's hilarious um, the people who study laughter aren't good at laughter yeah right? is that one way to think about yeah, it yeah they aren't well, like the way other academics you know study other behavior and art they ruin things right <laughs> I, I don't know if they deliberately ruin they're just not they just are like they're 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 being, they're being neutral it's like if, if i mm -hmm. uh you know i'm studying laughter i'm not laughing i'm right. studying it right so um so 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 let, let me explain that um i made a documentary uh whenever you make a whenever you finance a documentary in canada you have to have a good angle i mean you it, it's something that's changed but you have to have a have a really wild angle my my producer used to say you have to find Elvis alive. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's not going to be easy. Not and one so, of his, his thousands of impersonators. You have yeah. to find the real Elvis. Okay. So, so, yeah. uh, but I did find a story like that. I basically found out that, uh, no one, that no one had ever done a full investigation of laughter, even though, and then you're going to say, wait a second, that can't be true. Charlie Chaplin or, or whatever. But I'm going to say they're, they're, actually, they're trying to make people laugh. That's, not, but Charlie right, Chaplin isn't laughter. Charlie Chaplin is humor. Right. There's right. many, many films and documentaries about about humor. So humor is a cognitive process. You got to figure out that something is funny or see that something is funny. While laughter is a much more instinctive primal. And what we discovered was wow. that laughter that's, is a that's so interesting. Yeah. 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 Laughter is a human universal, and this is a big deal because um, previously to that, anthropology, a lot of other sort of cultural sciences had shown like big distinctions in human nature ac across culture. But what laughter proves is that every culture, every civilization ever laughs, laughs, yeah, and they more or laugh. less do it yeah. the same way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More or less the same way. So, so it transcends language. It transcends culture. It's all human beings understand the concept of spontaneously reacting with laughter That's to right. something that they find amusing or it doesn't yeah, have to be amusing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a baby thing. All babies start laughing at about, about six weeks. Yeah. So, so, so the reason why you're going to make the distinction with humor is a humor. Again, humor might vary. There are, mm. what's interesting yeah. is I found there yeah. are some cultures that have no humor. Uh, there's some, they're in Indonesia. Okay. They're like, you cannot tell them jokes. They'll stab you in the forehead. And uh, <laughs> I was thinking about Germany, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe them too. You know? no, it's, funny yeah. it's so funny that you say that because I, when I went to Germany, I actually love Germany. I Me mean, too. Germany. My uncle lives in Germany. I have um, family there. It's a wonderful country. I, don't, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, all I love for Germans and everything, but yeah. I would joke at them. I would say, is there such thing as a, a German, German comedian? comedy club? <laughs> like, bring me to it. I want to see it. And, and but they're like, oh yes, there is. We yeah, have, yeah, we yeah. have comedy and then clubs. Then you go and you're scratching your head. Like, <laughs> what, what is this? Yeah. Well, you know, it's. I mean, there's a bit of a crass joke about that about how the Nazis chased out all the best comedians. I don't know if the people have sometimes commented that the that the the first thing. Well, that goes, I mean, look, the first thing that goes. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. repressive. That's a really interesting point that yeah. you mentioned immediately yeah. about the spontaneity. I wanted to comment on is yeah. 
some of the greatest comedians who do politically incorrect humor, Mike Ward or Norm MacDonald, these are yeah. brilliant. Some of what they're doing is they're exposing things that are supposed to be taboo that maybe don't need to be taboo or shouldn't yeah. be taboo. Yeah. And, and, it's, and people naturally react with laughter. Or a cringing or some kind of a yeah. reaction, right? Because it's these are things that we're not supposed to, you know, uh, cover. I mean, you know, and, and then we're supposed to – this is just a, 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 an interesting comment I thought of when you were saying about the involuntary nature of it, right? Back to, uh, you know, what, what, what you had asked, um, like, what a you – know, Lapology. Yeah. What a lapologist. Yeah. So, so, sorry. Yeah. So, I, so luckily I was able to make a documentary uh, for CTV called Lapology, and basically the – they allowed me to sort of do this kind of crazy investigation first of this, like, the question of the universality of laughter and then incredibly strange laughter phenomena that also points back to the University of Laughter. So a lot of people don't know this, but in 1962, there was an epidemic of laughter in Tanzania where 35,000 people started called the Tanzanian laugh, laughter epidemic. That is wild. 35,000 people started <laughs> laughing and could not stop. So it's like hiccups, but with laughter. That's uh, actually a, something like that. A right? good way of a uh, good parallel. Yes, it's it, it was like um, people got worked up and they couldn't let go. And so it, when you get the giggles, yeah. you know, everyone's gotten. The, yeah. you know, some people get into a thing where you just you know, and you're trying to be serious, like you're at you're at a Thanksgiving dinner and yeah. you can't stop laughing yeah. about something, right? It was like that, except it went over the entire went, country. Or it went. It went. It even went into Uganda as part of the weird story. Yeah, and <laughs> jumped across the border, <laughs> but but but. Wow. People would go to fall asleep laughing, and they would wake up laughing. That is so and, wild. And a lot of people going through it did not think it was that funny because well, they yeah. couldn't stop. I mean, you're, you're stuck in this constant laughing yeah. thing, and you just you're trying to eat or whatever. Yeah, this is fascinating. It, I, I'm sure you explored this, but yeah, they I went how, there. How, I went there so, and found okay. people who were had been in the original epidemic, and I found out that the that there are aspects of the epidemic that persist meaning there's still people that have laugh attacks wow. Wow. and so it's, it's a common thing in africa it, it can really? I, yes but i found it also in the united states it can happen it happens in africa tanzania is a pretty interesting place because um where it happened is a pretty remote part of Tanzania where I went to, where the people, the families are very big. Like you're, you have like seven cousins and uh, you grow up together and the people are very close. The, the right, African people right. are very warm, you know, loving people. And uh, so, so they naturally tune into things together. So we both find right, like, right. you know, that crocodile chewing on his tail funny. <laughs> right. We're all going to laugh like really hard the same way about it. So it's something to do with the clan familiar connections of the people that the, led to that. Exactly. Right? The way the epidemic yeah. happened was apparently a, a group of teenagers who were stressed out, girls, I think, at a girls' school, started to laugh in the back of the classroom. And the teacher, like, basically got really upset and told them to stop. And, and it made the them pivotal, laugh more. Right. It made them yeah. laugh more. And it, it, it crossed a pivotal line. They couldn't stop. Did the teacher start laughing? No, then the teacher yeah. got the principal. When okay. the principal yeah. came, it's all logged. They wrote a log okay. about what happened. Wow. The principal there is like, if you don't stop laughing, there's going to be serious consequences, which makes them laugh more. <laughs> then now they're in a full-on jag. 
They cannot stop. And it, the kind of laughter is so contagious that the other kids start laughing. Wow. Now you've got a whole classroom laughing. And they don't want to because they, they can see they're going to get in trouble. They, Some of them are, are straight kids. They that's right. Like, yeah, right. But they right, can't right. stop. And wow. then it spreads to the other classes and the other <laughs> classes. And then the teachers, the principal makes this fatal mistake. He says, we can't control them. Send them home. So they send all the laughing kids home where they then infect their families. And then it spreads to 35,000 people. I'm not exaggerating. Looking up Tanzania is laughter so epidemic. Wild. Um, so that's a, that's a case of, because there's nothing humorous going on. There. There's no humor there, right? When, Just to exactly. get back to your original so, point. So what right? a laughologist is, or what, what I discover, I'm not the only one to discover this, is that when you separate humor from laughter, you get something interesting and, 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 and bigger. You get to a bigger place because humor, like I said, is taste, cultural oriented. We might like Monty Python, other people mm -hmm. might not. Yeah. But laughter is a huge universal. And 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 so when I this one blew my mind, but I'll tell you even why it was sort of important more in a sort of I'm gonna say soul way, but Tom Green was going through an interesting time at this time. The great comedian, Canadian. Yes, Canadian. Yeah. So Tom Green, I think, was had become a really big deal and gone to Hollywood and kind of sunk his ship, uh, where he was not doing so well. And I remember that he was doing a show where he described driving on the highway and with it with his crew and finding a dead moose at the side of the road somewhere in Montana or something like that. So being Tom Green. I remember he describes this experience. Takes a selfie with it or something. Yeah. It's worse. Yeah. It's worse. Yeah. Tom Green gets out and he's like, he says, start, you know, roll the cameras. And he sticks his head up the rotting moose's ass. Jeez. Then I think he barfs. But the point was, wow. I looked at this and I thought, is this what you have to do to be funny these days? Yeah. Like stick your head yeah. up the corpse of a dead moose? And... Um, does it even get a laugh? Because it sounds kind of disgusting to That's me. Right. Although, That's although right. Although it's so wild that it must sort of give that reaction. But I, re but I remember thinking, I started to ask the question at that point, like all comedians in a way are questing. Like, right, all, right, comedians are questing. Yeah. What's the ultimate joke? The ultimate funny moment? They're trying things, yeah. right? They try something and it doesn't land. They try something else, it lands, They right? The question is, yeah. what are they, you know, deep down, what are they really searching for? And a kind of like this feeling of there, there being an ultimate joke. And then when I, when I discovered that when you separate humor from laughter, you, there it is. The ultimate joke is laughter itself. That laughter itself right, is this right. fundamental human universal. We all do it. We all do it the same way. It all makes us feel human, better, happier, lighter. It's an. It's 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 this. Uh, it, it was my uh, was a, you know it was my discovery. I can say I, I I'm not the only one who discovered it, but it was a big deal when I in finally this quest in, about laughology. Yeah, yeah. So in the documentary that happens where we we figure with Tanzania and laughter epidemic. I mean other weird things that make matters even weirder. I went to uh, India to find out the origins of laughter yoga. So laughter yoga is an exercise technique where you try to laugh as much as possible. And <laughs> it's like this incredible... While doing yoga? Is no, it? no. It just, uses, yeah. it just borrows some of the breathing techniques from yoga. Okay. Yeah. But um, when I go to uh, India to find the guy to Mumbai, by complete terrible coincidence... As I arrive, the Mumbai massacre starts taking oh place. My God. Wow. Where literally nothing funny about that, it, right? Yeah, it, it was the most unfunny thing that could happen. Yeah. But that yeah. was, if people see the film, they'll understand. It's kind mm. of an interesting twist because you see 
uh, there's lots of shots of people crying. I went to the shooting scenes. Somebody I know, I don't want to invade his privacy, but there's a great Montreal actor named Michael Rudder, who by complete coincidence was in Mumbai at the same time. Michael Rudder was sitting in a restaurant when it was machine gunned and was shot. Um, Miraculously, he survived. He's back in Montreal, a wonderful human being, but I don't, I don't think, I think it was a very tough experience for him. So, so this, I mean, I'm just curious as a side note, did you do any journalistic work about that? Just it's, 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 in, it's in the film, and I, film. what yeah. I think, what I think is interesting. And I think this isn't what, see what, when you study laughter, it changes your view of, so there's a conventional view of, 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 of life, which is that, uh, uh, when we are happy, we laugh. Uh, when we were sad, we're, we cry, and these are polar opposites. But actually, when you study it, you find out that actually that's not true. The polar opposites are sort of connected. Somehow. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. when people laugh really hard, they cry. Sometimes when they cry really hard, they, they laugh. start laughing. And also, people crying. Whenever I see it in movies, it always sounds like they're laughing. And when you see someone really break in, break into tears, it sounds like they're laughing. These are these right? critical cathartic <laughs> yeah. uh, behaviors. But but what what when you really say laughter, what's a better opposite for laughter actually is stress behavior. So mm, so so seriousness, gravity, <laughs> yeah. and 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 horror is a better opposite to laughter than than crying. Uh, and and that's what I experienced in Mumbai. I saw the ultimate seriousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, people being shot at random for no reason. Uh, and not knowing who is going to get shot next. We know? often comment about that. Like, there's, you know, we mentioned the Nazis not being funny, but there's also, right, <laughs> you know, like, oh, no, it's nothing serious. It's you know, totally, nothing totally serious. It's like next week at Just for Laughs. <laughs> yeah. The Nazis. The Nazis coming up. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the same for, um, for like Islamist jihadists. Right. It's, it's like they're, they're oh, yeah. totally opposed to this idea of the, joyousness it, or something. You, know, you're, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. This is what. <laughs> Laughology, which I, I would say is like an invented science, but yeah. but this is that what it shows you is that the problem in the world is seriousness and right, over seriousness, right. and yeah, that's what totally Islam, agree. Islamists are. Yeah. That's what religion, you know, often uh, very religious people are. It's not that they have their weird religion where they worship a guy, angry guy with a beard. It's that they are so serious, yeah. and they think everybody else fun. should be serious yeah. too. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, they're the anti-fun police. It's interesting because it, it's, it's really important to be serious at times and to yeah. focus at things. And, you know, like if you're going to do it, if you're going to do something like, you know, write an essay or do, I'm just thinking about from an education perspective, but you is, can't be laughing all the time in it, class. Not all the time, do, but it, right? I think that the yeah. need for seriousness has been greatly exaggerated. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be that on my tombstone. <laughs> The need for seriousness has been greatly exaggerated. I'll try and remember that in case, in case I try. Yeah. But so yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. It's 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 really well, a few things spring to mind. One is is that just if you look in recent years at, at the the way that comedy has become subversive. You know, again, back to Mike Ward. The the Human Rights Commission went after him. I don't know if you know this. I know that story. Yeah, know that story. Yeah. I went and saw him at, at do comedy at Club Soda, and he talked extensively about that. I mean, speaking of serious people, these That's, are people in Quebec City or whatever who are like sort of like, oh, somebody complained about this yeah. joke or whatever. Right. We need to investigate. Well, this, this is a very big, serious. You know, this yeah. could harm someone or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like you sort of understand it in a 
philosophical level, obviously, you see we should be logic. insulting. Yeah. And like, po- you know, on the other hand, but putting it into a government bureaucracy where they're going to be going around, it's yeah. like that's sort of the ultimate ser- overly serious yes. kind of application. Exactly. And what's interesting to me about that is the only way that that kind of censorship ever works is if you go all in. Yeah. You have to put people in a gulag. Right. I mean, I don't I'm not suggesting this is good. I'm just saying that if you're going to repress a comedian, you have to actually kill the guy or get him out of there. Because if you don't, it just makes going. it more popular. People are like, whoa, Mike Ward is bigger than ever now in I would, Quebec and in Canada. I would or, say know. this is Jordan Peterson. What made Jordan Peterson is his attack on political correctness. And even though I think Jordan Peterson is often. Wrong. He's a pretty serious guy. Speaking yeah, of, yeah. Speaking of serious, he no but, yeah. He, he's often wrong about a lot of things, but there's this sort of perception that there's a there's a, there's a toxic political correctness, yeah. um, which is just a complicated story. It's yeah. a complicated story. You don't think there is? Because I, I, I no, kinda, I think there is. Yeah, I, th- I, I think, think there, there is. is. Yeah, I think there I is. Think there is one. I think there's always yeah. been. It's nothing yeah. new. I think there's always been. I mean, it used to be more that it was created by the institutions. Yeah. And I think that the sort of, it's a weird thing. I look, I look at my daughter. My daughter is 16 or 17 now. And the way that she often rebels against me because her dad is like off in Peru doing ayahuasca and psychedelic this, psychedelic that. Her like ideas, dad, you know, can you just settle down and like, like speak normally or whatever? The kids, they respond. Yeah. Their rebellion is gender identity. You know, you guys are too mm-hmm. rigid about our, uh, our gender. Day. Like and that, yeah. they, res- part of the rebellion is to be politically correct mm. because um, so much in a tired way, boomer and generation X culture is like our, we show rebellion by political incorrectness. Um, and they're just tired of that. They've yeah. heard it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I understand, but it, it doesn't change the fact that we need freedom. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I because like the, the, the freedom thing is something I've sort of increasingly, as I go through my life, I come keep returning to and yeah. find. And, and yeah. I mean, Jordan Peterson has this whole thing about um, freedom of expression being the sort of he has a hierarchy, hierarchy of freedoms, right? And he's I think he's right that if you don't have freedom of expression, the other freedoms sort of also can be infringed. There's there's something about speech. Now, it's a tough balance because you don't want to people to be deliberately rude. I mean, if I understand I tell my students at the beginning of the year, I tell them, look, and I'm I'm sort of my branding as a teacher is like you know, uh, freedom of expression, you know, and fun and stuff like, <laughs> like trying to be yeah. funny in class and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I have on, on my the door of my office, I have the George Orwell quote. Um, if you've heard this, if, if, if we're not free to tell people things they don't want to hear, then we're not really, we don't really yeah. have freedom of yeah. expression, something like that. And the Noam Chomsky one, the, anyway, I've got them confused. There's two that they have. But um, but what what I'm what I think is really important is is to sort of f- go down a fine line where once it goes into an institution like we we have in Canada seven out of our ten provinces have human rights commissions, and these are extrajudicial bodies that don't have to follow the rule. Like you're not innocent until proven guilty in these bodies. You don't have the normal rights and all that stuff you would have being charged in a regular court. Yeah, these things would never make see the light of day in a court. Yeah. Half of the things that go to the human yeah. rights commission. I agree. Know? I agree that. Is, um, at once it is terrifying, but look at let's look at an example of the other I'm not sure side. Terrifying. Of it. <laughs> I would use that word. It's no, not that or maybe, bad, but yeah, maybe maybe sinister, concerning, concerning. Concerning. Yeah, concerning is a better word. But on yeah. the other hand, you have like um, you know these, that terrible story in London, Ontario, 
of um, the Muslims who yeah, were so down. Muslims were yeah. run down by some random. Idiot. But that's a criminal act. What, what I'm saying though is right? a, is it's that a, we know that's what hate speech does. Yeah. Hate speech Leads gets people run over by racists and um, and also other things. I mean, yeah. I just think history has shown that hate speech does have an impact. But you know, it's funny. I, uh, I'm Jewish, and so I, I, I'm, you know, I've followed these stories forever. I still think I would, I, I'd still rather live in a, a freer, more expressive society. And I think part of life might be it's okay. A little bit of hate speech is not going to actually kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and might be just a result of living in a complicated society. Um, well, I think it's I think it's impossible. I mean, if we live in a free society, there, first of all, we have to accept that not everyone's going to agree with us. That's the first thing. And 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 it's not that I like Nazi speech. The reason why I'm obviously I don't right or anything or anything. Like yeah, look, right, yeah. Look, I, yeah I don't not- like. Yeah, let, let me put it on the record. I don't like Nazis. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's it's not that I. It's just that it's. It's sort of like one of those, which is a worse alternative? Well, the government having the power to suppress somebody for saying something, who's going to decide that is the problem? Or letting people talk and having people... And, and, and I, I, I think once you set the precedent of someone saying, this is wrong and this is okay, then eventually it's going to... And I'll give you an example. In Ontario a couple of years ago, this was before the pandemic, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, somebody made a complaint about the anarchy sign being spray painted on, you know, and so it's just, it's, is it a matter of time? It's fine as long as we're suppressing the Nazis and the this and that. And then if it, my concern is always that once that's instantiated, that it can be abused, but maybe I'm overly paranoid. I don't know. No, I think this is, no, so. I, I, I think a bigger question, another, I'm opening up a whole kettle of worms, but does anybody think that during the pandemic, there was an open and free discussion yeah. about the science or the realities of the pandemic? I think just yeah. about no one thinks that. So what you, you, we do have as a culture, on one hand, there is a lot of freedom of expression. We have like the, you know, the social media is quite incredible in terms of what you used to be able to get away with. But on the other <laughs> hand, but, but I don't yeah. see that. I don't, I don't see it as the human rights commissions. I just think it's more the matrix. Right. The right, way, yeah. the way people think, yeah. people think, um, people think in cliches. They think in very routine and repetitive ways. And so you can't blame it all. There's no, there's no yeah, overlord. It's a fair point. Yeah. Sort of saying you cannot think this. Um, it's just more a, uh, yeah. you know, a, a way that just human beings tend to organize. Well, there is. I mean, you mentioned this thing about political correctness. Most of the problem with political correctness is sort of a social phenomenon where people sort of, uh, you know, um, where people are. First of all, there's self censoring, which. Self-censorship is a good thing in the sense that there should be taboos, right? No, of course it there is. Should, there should be, like, I, I should not brain. feel comfortable saying racist <laughs> things or something like that because there, like, there should be a taboo there, right? It's just a matter of where that line is and how that's, how much are we going to tolerate? It's, it's, it's not, really not an easy problem, right? It's, yeah. 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 Uh, but, but I think, I think it could be done. We could all, it could deal with it in a healthy way because it's stigmatized this way right now. You know, one of the worst things that can happen to you is at work or, or to get, you know, caught doing something racist or sexist. And um, yeah. instead of you learning from the process, it becomes this, you know, big stigma. And that's 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 not progress. If we want, yeah. you know, most people don't want to be racist. Most people don't want to be sexist. They just don't know <laughs> how true. to do it, you know. But there's also an incentive problem. I mean, I, I've, I've been a sort of an amateur student of economics for a really long time and in economics that people look at what are the incentives so people look for social capital so one way to get social capital is to 
you know, promote the idea that you're a victim, which is what is happening, right? That's one way now, right? So, okay, you're so yeah. is, we, should, we should call your podcast Can of Worms. Because <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. we're opening up one can of worms, another can of worms. I just want to tell you one really crazy story. It, like in the documentary business, there's a bunch, you know, what happens is that ideas get pitched around. Sometimes there's common ideas, different filmmakers are thinking the same thing. There's an idea being kicked around that nobody can do, that everybody kind of wants to do. Please but, expose it on okay. my podcast. Yeah. Victims. Victims. It's yeah. a really big problem. Our culture has created a, yeah. um, a self-victimization, uh, a victim story, a victim culture that is extremely toxic and extremely dangerous. And it's actually, and it's bad for people. I, I can explain it a bit from yeah. a hypnotherapeutic angle. Uh, Gabor Mate has a great explanation for it. So, so people, People suffer all the time. You know, people have experienced abuse. All life is suffering. That's like one of the teachings of great religions. Yeah. And people are abused. People are mistreated. Yeah. Uh, somebody's listening to this right now got abused or mistreated. But what Gabor Maté points out is that you can recognize that somebody mistreated you. You can recognize somebody insulted you, hurt you, or abused you. Um, but if you stay in the yeah. role of victim, you are trapped. And not only are you trapped, you actually become toxic because you're always looking for a reason to justify your role. Once again, wow, Jason McDonald profound. is yeah. making me feel bad with his podcast. <laughs> Once again, just like they always do. And, and, yeah. and we live in a culture now where the game for some people is to be the biggest victim. Yeah. If I can be the biggest victim, then then you I... get social capital from that, right? Which is really kind of backwards. It used to be if I was the greatest, strongest, like if you go back to classical times, for example, if yeah. I was Julius Caesar, yeah. and then you bunch of victims, you're a bunch of wimps or whatever. That's right. You. But now it's almost I, I, I think it's something to do with Christianity. Christ was sort of the ultimate victim, and and he accepted it, and all this, and I, or something. And there's maybe a deeper story there. But I, I think it, I'm it, opening another can. In 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 in, in, um, in therapeutic strategies, it is a key part of people coming to terms with their uh, what's happened to them. So, yeah. So a yeah, person, right. so let's say somebody is abused as a child. They need. To, they do. Need you have to, to go through that. You have to, to yeah, realize that it happened to you and understood that it hurt right. you and all right. that. Right. right. Yeah. And 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 and. But then it's important for you to heal from it and no, and no longer be the victim and move yeah. on in life. But but a lot of us stay stuck. And and, and a, a good example of this. Uh, actually, I forgot what I was going to say right now. But I was going to say there's some really critical examples. Well, just a quick. Well, maybe you'll remember it. But yeah, go ahead. Please. I was just going to say the yeah. point is that nobody wants. To, nobody feels like a lot of people are talking about this documentary. Nobody can make it because they will be attacked by all the victims yeah, out there. Right. It's, it's almost like, like a catch-22. And, and the right. victim industry. You, you, you know um, who has made a, a good some work on this? A guy called Shelby Steele. Have okay. you ever heard of him? He's, he's uh, an African-American um, writer and, and uh, you know... Uh, Anyway, he's a speaker. He's he's focused specifically on the way that the Black American community is sort of cleaved between a kind of victimology narrative right. versus a more hey, let's just move on with things narrative. And it's kind of that's really where you see that the conflict in that community in, yeah, in, in the twenty twenties. Interesting. And and his whole thing is sort of like you know don't get like I, you know I, basically he has this thing where you know you have to he, he uses the term leave the reservation which is sort of very politically incorrect but basically get out of it and, and kind of move into a different mind frame and just say look the opportunities are there for you you could go and do it now i don't want to please that, don't think that, i'm saying there's no yeah. racism or anything like yeah. that it's not what i mean but it's that's not it's not a denial it's also the same thing Gabor Mate and other people are not saying that you 
that you pretend that you weren't abused or you pretend that you weren't right. victimized. It's that you get out of, you need to, like, I'll give you an example. If you were at a party, a uh, cocktail party, and people are having fun laughing, but, and then, you know, somebody stepped on your foot and it hurt, let's say, you know, maybe it hurt enough that you, you were like, ow, that my foot hurts. But, okay, as the party goes on, if we keep going back to you, Jason, how you doing? He's like, yeah, my fucking foot, you <laughs> right, motherfucker. You know, yeah, you yeah. stepped on my foot, you bastard. You right, know? we're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, but that was an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, you know, later in the party, everybody's like, cheers, cheers, and how you, go, you doing? my foot. Remember when Albert stepped on my foot two <laughs> hours ago? Exactly. Yeah. You see how unfun it is and how <laughs> totally. toxic yes. it yeah. is. But that's the other thing, is there's no humor or laughter about that yeah. mindset, right? Yeah, because they're very... They keep trying to prove more. They want to go deeper. Yeah. You should, then they're like, you know, can you see the bruises? <laughs> can you see there's some skin lesions from when he stepped on my foot? So they, they're going deeper into the hurt. Yeah, and the hurt might be there. It maybe it was there. But but also the other thing is, this is another thing you'll notice: people who have really suffered. Yeah, people who are really the Victor Frankels of the, the world, world, for example. They're right? not. They're, yeah. they're usually yeah. not going. I'm, my legs are sore. Yeah. My, my. Well, that there's also a survivor bias too. People who've people who've gone through like Viktor Frankl was in was in a concentration camp mm. and he survived, mm. right? Which meant there must be something about him that can get beyond it. So there's a kind of a grit there that is like, okay, I'm going to move on with my life, and I'm going to, you know. And the ones who couldn't do that, that were stuck in that victim mentality, maybe they couldn't get through it. And th that's not a value judgment about them as people. It's just you know, the, it's, the, uh, the reason it's important for us to talk about this is it has to do with the with the cultural valuation of things. So let me explain what I mean. The way you get out of the role of a of, of victim is that you 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 start to see instead of seeing yourself as a person who's always being hurt or having your foot stepped on, you're like uh, you might change it to I'm going to go step on Albert's foot. Yeah, I'm right, the step yeah, on, yeah, or right. no, yeah. I'm the person who walks around the party and nobody steps on my foot. You've now changed your role. I'm going to go enjoy the party. Right. You've moved on. I'm going to enjoy being with friends. And so so, it, but if we as a culture start saying. The most important person is the person who's had their foot stepped on. Yeah. And they, they need to be able to tell their story and to raise their narrative. And then you're like, okay. And we, we give them social capital of the right. people who play that up. And the other thing is, let's say somebody steps on your foot at the party. Yeah. The first thing they might do is apologize. I'm really sorry. And, yeah. and you, and in a reasonable world, that's right. A reasonable should. person should accept the apology yeah. if it's genuine. That's if the guy's like, yeah, sorry, Albert. Ha ha ha. Then you go, okay, I'm not. But if they're like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I stepped on your foot. I didn't mean to. Right. I, you know, exactly. Right. Or even next step. Let's say you <laughs> did mean to step on your foot. Then you say, you should, you know, I was like, Jason, that requires a deeper apology. Right. Right. And the it's like, goes, I, maybe, you know, maybe I'm almost not crying, but just, oh my God, I was such a jerk. I, right. I thought I would be funny, funny. or something exactly. like that. Right. And, By that, stepping should, on your and foot. that should be accepted too. Then we all move forward and we stop yeah. being concerned with the trivialities yeah. of who stepped on whose foot, you know? <laughs> and then, well, this, <laughs> this gets back to the social media thing. There's a British writer who you may have heard of called Douglas Murray. Who's a, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a, Somewhat a controversial guy, but very, very smart. And he's written an entire book called The Madness of Crowds about how on social media these kinds of phenomena. And he talks constantly about how we need a way in our time for this kind of apology and re reintegration of a person into the community. Because right now with the cancel culture, with it not this doesn't happen all the time or anything, but there are cases where people are just supposed to be expunged from the community in some way. Forever. And then forever, forever and gone. And no matter what they say, in some cases they're sort of giving these 
weird, almost North Korean like apologies. There was just some examples he gives yeah. British footballers who they find a tweet from 2013 yeah. or something, yeah. and, he, and yeah. they're up there. I'm sorry, or Kevin Hart or something like that. Yeah, you know, and they're sort of making an apology. They're trying to apologize, and then they're not seen as genuine, or I don't know what's going on there, but. Do you th just before we move on because I, I want to move on. This is a yeah. really cool conversation, but yeah. time is uh, wasting um, here. Um, um, do you think that the cancel culture is still ascending, or do you think that it's peaked, like the wokeism and all that? Do you have any view on where it's going? Because there seems to be different opinions. Some people think that it's still uh, be an increasing threat. Some people think it's getting less and less. You know, look, like I, I remember, like I said, I've got a teenage daughter, and I, and I'm a t and 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 uh, one thing that I found funny. Is that um, you know I've learned a lot. Like for example, the difference when I was a teenager, and probably you too, I remember the horror that I had friends who were gay, and I had the horror of it be of of let's say the idea of it, let's say people knowing. So yeah. I, I had a gay friend. People shame around it. Yeah, it, it was near fatal. You could get killed for being gay, and the difference is now that. Uh, my uh, with my daughter's scene, um, uh, it's not even that people are gay. People are like, uh, "Dad, we're non-binary. Stop yeah, yeah. being so gender-oriented." <laughs> uh, Dad, yeah. uh, gender is a social construction, uh, which some I, of it is. That's yeah. right, and I actually kind of some agree. Of yeah. I agree, and I think that there's something beautiful about these kids. Aren't they're not afraid yeah. to be uh, many things, including gay. Yeah. You know, and and um, so all that is good, and that you might you have to attribute that to wokeism, that there's an enlightenment around gender which is valuable. The maybe unvaluable part is the way it is negotiated. The culture hasn't kept up as like, um, why not teach people? Like, I'll give you an example. I, I, I always get this, I'm, I'm like they them. There's something problematic about they them. So somebody says they're coming to the party. Yeah, I'm like, you know, should we put out people? Yeah, right, exactly. put out some yeah. And if yeah. you make, if you sort of yeah. make a joke about it, is that one person or three? Yeah. Then that's not funny. But it is funny. Of course, it's funny. Of course, it's funny. <laughs> of course, it's funny. It's also yeah. I mean, it's the thing that because my my niece actually went through a period where she was transgender. She, my my brother lives in California, and uh, he has three three daughters. And, um, and this was, this was, she, she, her, she now has gone back to being fine with she and everything. And for a while, um, she changed her name from Violet to Vex and now she's going by V and everything. And so I, I gave this a great deal of thought because I wanted to be really respectful of my niece and I love her and she's really, really smart and interesting and everything. And I thought to myself, the name thing I think is totally cool. You know, if I, if I want to, my name is my name. Right. So I can say my name is now, you know, beautiful chair or something. And it's a bit weird, but <laughs> like that. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Um, and, 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 and if I say to you, Albert, you should call me beautiful chair, then that I'm not imposing anything on you because the, my name belongs to me, but they and them don't belong to any individual there. It's a part of the language and, la and the English language is not invented or prescribed to anybody. It's sort of a natural process. So this idea that you can say, Hey, that's not, you're, you're doing something harming me you know doing something to me by using this english word is something that it's like innocent to me i think there's there's almost an overstepping there in yeah some senses, that's, a, that's i think i mean i just think that um i mean some people pointed out that every generation rebels and yeah. this th this generation the way they're rebelling and good for them on some level is by yeah. overthrowing the rules of gender like, and it's our job also to maintain what is and to sort of allow the things that are the dead wood to be burned off but keep the things that are useful 
yeah. if that makes sense, right? Because we don't want everything, in, you know, I don't know. We don't want like a, you know, was the Russian Revolution a good thing? Was the, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, I'm sorry, I interrupt. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know where you were going I, with I mean, that. I, but, the same, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think that the, that the, the um, like I said, is that the, it's what you what you said originally. The problem is that the culture is not actually a good place to learn. Meaning, when somebody is at a an event or a cultural event and they use the wrong pronoun, they get shamed, and 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 then maybe it gets written down in the newspaper. And instead of them actually getting the pronoun right and just moving on in life. We now make an issue. We literally right, make right. a big issue. There's no it, reintegration with the no, apology right. and all that kind of stuff. That, yeah. And there's no emphasis on that. Yeah. It's more about um, people. And this is also this high, it's like a high school thing, an in-out thing. We are the people who understand pronouns and we exclude right, right, the people yeah, that don't. Yeah, yeah. But also before it was we were the un people who understood uh, that racism is bad and we exclude the people and don't. Instead of making an effort to turn racist into non-racist, you know what I mean? And And, and that's... That is still the problem with society is that we, we there's a lack of meaningful learning um, around political issues uh, because we're more interested in being right. Well, the other thing that's interesting is that there's an assumption that the linear progress is going in the right direction, and it has been. And you wonder if, like, are there are there social changes which might not, like things that yeah. we think are progressive that maybe yeah. are not progressive? That's yeah. a very difficult That's problem. That's a tough one. That's a right? tough because one. It, because everything, like, I'll just give you an example of how things progress, but some things don't change. So, you know, if you go back to the things like, you know, the racism stuff from the 60s, the, you know, homosexuality being accepted, and then you have gay marriage, you have all these things have moved in a kind of linear direction where the left-wing progressive views have become, the Overton window has moved in that um, you know, way because I think that our culture has made moral progress and we've recognized that, the, the, you know, individuals have the right to, uh, you know, be what they want to be and so on. But one particular issue has not been solved and may never be solved, and that's abortion. Because abor people who are, and I'm not making a claim of what I believe in or anything, I'm just pointing it out, that there's two completely different axioms of where to begin, right? Yeah, do you begin with, my view is that the woman, it's her body, so it would be like if she wanted to have her finger amputated or something, it's a dumb analogy, but it's her body. Or is that that unborn fetus a separate individual? And those, and you'll see, I mean, abortion has not just become, like it's still something that people actually argue about, Right. Whereas no, nobody argues for Jim Crow laws, nobody or nobody argues to bring back back slavery. Nobody, nobody say we should roll back gay marriage, and that was very recent too. The gay marriage thing was like what not that long ago that it, in this century, right? Yeah. So it, it's a tough one. I would just say, look, I mean, I would explain it this way: it's a uniquely American phenomenon right now that there's an abortion debate. I think other everyone else has moved on. Everyone else has moved I, on. Yeah, I, I interviewed a guy called Roy Epen who was running for the Conservative Party, and he's actually. Um, in, he's pro-life and we discussed this and he he was very categorical he said i don't want to change any laws i i i'm fine i'm a doctor and i i even have recommended women to have abortions as a doctor and as a medical procedure i'm fine with it but i myself 
am in favor of life. I think, you know, I think that a woman, all things being equal, should choose to have the child. Right? That's just my view, you know. And then when Eddie was describing that, I, I said to him, it sounds like your pro-life position sounds like my pro-choice position, <laughs> which is sort of interesting, right? But, okay. I don't, yeah. But just yeah, to wrap I can zero in on one thing, but it's, yeah. it's another can of worms in the can of worms podcast. We're going to move on in a minute. But, but, yeah. um, but this is a very interesting question. When is the left wrong? Because I'm going to say, yeah. I'm like a left-wing person have been left wing. My father was left wing. Uh, I'm in a left wing tradition. And so uh, what's very interesting to me is I generally think that, you know, in a struggling kind of half ass, sometimes, um, you know, complicated way, the left is basically, the hippies were basically right. Freedom is good. Love is good. You want to know where they're wrong? Okay, but economics. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay that's where they get I want to give you yeah. another example. Yeah. I want to give you another example. <laughs> I think the left became questionable during the pandemic. Mm. And this, and I'll tell you why. Right. I don't know if the left was wrong or right. I mean, I think the left, so the left was much more beyond, behind lockdowns, uh, vaccinations. They were anti-freedom on and, the lockdown. Right. And, yeah. and what I just found was when I was really trying to understand what was going on, meaning I wanted to get the science, I wanted to get the interesting opinions and debate, I had to go to right-wing sources. Yeah, I'm a left-wing guy, and I'm going, how come I'm You're reading... You're not the first one to make this right. comment. I'm yeah, reading this but... in the National Post, because the left was so cleaved to, like, <laughs> we must conform to lockdown. Yeah. Uh, everybody must wear a mask. And and it's not that I don't think these things are wrong. You know, I'm generally, at the time, I was more pro, I was pro-vaccine, I was pro-mask. I was pro, like, but I was never pro-lockdown. I thought lockdown, huge mistake. And I think it's continued to be a mistake. Uh, you know, locking down a civilization is a mistake. Um, and um, well, for one thing, it creates this backlash. Exactly for that exact problem. reason, it creates you know, a backlash. Like people unending. are like, "Whoa, you know, these these people." Okay, the left wing people are locking me down. Screw them. Yeah, kind of you know, that's right. <laughs> and, and you'll never yeah. do it again. You'll oh, never. The CAQ never be is hardly left wing, and they yeah. were, you know, very dictatorial. It, 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 this is the thing that the problem with the with the locked and look. look Governments, like any institution, will seek to expand and take over more power. That's just any individual tries to grow. And, and, you know, institutions try. I mean, I, I'm part of an institution, right? I'm, I'm in, in a CEGEP. We want more students. We, we don't want to die, right? So governments, they're power institutions. That's what they do. Their, their job is to create laws. And then when people break those laws, they impose punishment. And they have to do that. So where they can, it seems to me, they will try and expand their power. So I, I think the governments in Canada that we've seen, like the CAQ and Justin Trudeau, saw this, and in China too, saw this as an opportunity just Remember, to, started, to take over. Yeah, started in China. <laughs> well, no, to, I, to take over power to say, okay, well, you need to do this and do that. Is it really a tricky thing? It's a really tricky thing. But I think I think maybe where we would agree was. There was just there was a lack of open discussion. Yeah. There's a lack of healthy debate. Like CBC was terrible. There was like one line, you know, and one and a half line, you know, opinions basically about really drastic things that were taking place. You weren't allowed to challenge or debate it. You fell into one right, camp right. or another. Yeah. You were either like pro-vax or anti-vax when there was actually a multiplicity of takes. Um, and and so the result was. Uh, Kind of like now we're in sort of a cynical state where nobody trusts anyone <laughs> yeah. because we yeah. we, thought that we found out there was a certain amount of bullshit or a certain amount of thinking on the spot. And I think people are increasingly cynical because they're they're realizing that 
these large institutions, you know, the, the U.S., the, C, the CDC, is that the name yeah. of it, right? You know, basically, and the Trudeau government, this has been exposed as well. Basically, we're using this. And that's, I mean, they're being, why should we be surprised at that in some sense? Again, back to the expand your power thing. But let, let me give you a crazy, crazy example for this. I mean, look, I think they really thought, I, I, I don't want to, you know, pretend, I don't think the Trudeau government thought, we think this is a fake no, medical no. crisis. And right, they just yeah. thought this is a real medical crisis. This is the best way we're being told to deal with it. And you see that they've always been doing this. Like, you know, medical people have a culture and this is the way they do things. One of the, one of the th things that characterizes medical culture is arrogance. Yeah. I mean, it just does. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So they were like, we're going to just. God in a white coat kind yeah, of thing. We're right? just going to start. Yeah. We're going to shut everything down to everybody to stay home. At a certain point, it would have been. But here's the other thing. Here's the other context. There's a bunch of other debates about this. Uh, if you look at the big picture, climate change, the best thing that could have happened, the very best thing that could have happened to human civilization, was a plague that wipes out two thirds of the population. That would have been the best thing. Then human civilization might have a chance of survival over the next fifty hundred years. Yeah. Well. Wow. You know, that, that thing about the cure being worse than the disease, right? I mean, is that, uh, yeah. Anyways, we, 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 I realized we could go on and on with this. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I actually, I don't mind these kind of but, rabbit holes. But, 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 uh, the, 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 but just the, I think that what happened was there's a kind of a problem of expertise being overvalued and also yeah. unifocused. Like, yes. the politicians, what they, sh what a good, I mean, some political leaders have done well with this pandemic. They should bring in a medical doc, medical doctors, listen to them, bring in psychologists, educators, uh, you know, early childhood education. Because you see that I, I see the damage that was done to young people yeah, I know. because of because know, of the lockdowns. I wrote a whole article about it. I'll yeah, send it to you about how sure. after the pandemic, people came in and I'm still seeing reading essays. I was grading my exams. Students telling me how they started out with like doing Zoom classes and they lost interest and failed and all this stuff. Yeah, and it's just, of course. The and it's like, and, and, right, yeah. depression, all that stuff. And you think, and so we were giving these arrogant medicalists, and they're like, okay, we're going to give, we're just going to use this one thing as our as our focus of what we're going to do. And we're going to use that and nothing else. And I think we need to, I think we need a new generation of political people to say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Either. If I can just throw something in, yeah. it's like, okay, one, I mean, one thing that happened to me is that I was with a group of people during the, when the pandemic started. I said, this is, I actually had a friend who's a, a doctor in um, Sunnybrook Hospital in, in Toronto. I, and very early on, I asked, where is this going to go? And he said, he said, I think that there's something interesting about going outside. Yeah. And, uh, and and I was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, meaning that this virus probably can't go outside. And I did a bunch of crazy research, fascinating research. Like, why isn't this better? There's a million things I can tell you. Not a million. A few things I can tell you. You're going to go, why isn't this better? No. So one thing that's very interesting is if you look into the – so. Governments for decades were very fascinated in using viruses for biological warfare because what better way you drop a virus on your enemy and then they all get it and everybody dies or whatever. Um, why isn't that used? Why don't you hear about that being used in the Ukraine or places like that? Because it doesn't work that well. You know why it doesn't work that well? It spreads into, comes, blows back on you. Either so, blows back on yeah. you or, or this is other factor. Almost all viruses are immediately eradicated by sunlight. Yeah, sunlight well, is the enemy of viruses. Now, <laughs> does this take you to... So That's interesting, yeah. They don't last that long, right? <laughs> yeah. Eventually, people go outside and it dies and cough and it just dies in the air. That's right, it dies in the air, except yeah. when you go inside. So so here's the other thing. We're now living... We're, it's 
fall when we're doing this right now. And uh, there's this weird magical thinking there. People are like, isn't it uh, odd that during the summer, uh, um, COVID rates are so much lower and uh, it's pretty okay to hang around with people and find. And then, then back in winter time, Suddenly, everybody's getting sick, and everybody's got isolated, and COVID rates are jumping, and nobody and it's nobody not thinks odd at all. If well, you know, yeah, but nobody thinks well, 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 sunlight. Yeah, isn't maybe the sun is a factor in this? You know, and 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 there's there's a bunch of research showing that actually yeah. right around now, which is late September, early October, the sun's rays in in where we are in this part of the hemisphere become so low you can't derive natural oh, vitamin D. So our vitamin D levels simultaneously, all of us, our vitamin D levels start dropping unless we're, unless so we're outside less often anyway. Even if we are outside, we don't. The sun doesn't actually penetrate into our Got skin it. in the yes. way that it's supposed to. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's quite true that the COVID uh, thing seemed to be worse in in northern climates, which shouldn't surprise anybody. It's a flu, exactly. Right? Or uh, you or know. you know, and people would say, oh yeah, but um, look at uh, Peru or places like that it was almost on the equator. But but you know what? India. I, I was just in Lima. I was just in. 10 million people live in Lima. Lima is not like a <laughs> tropical paradise. It's a fucking industrial <laughs> and, nightmare. And they're jammed into probably relatively oh, small dwellings because it's a poor country. That's so right. and space it's, is more limited, right? And it's not yeah. that warm. It's a pretty cold place. So people are... Is it mountainous? Electric. Is it, is when it? you get into pro Peru proper, of course, it's the Andes. But Lima is this plateau right next to the ocean okay. that's very industrial yeah. and very cold. And they're all crammed in together. And it's actually a good metaphor for because Peru has very had a big problem with COVID. Like I was just there, everyone's masked. It's still like uh, huh. they the, had lockdowns. They lockdowns. had lockdowns a whole yeah. bit, yeah. but that's because of, I blame Lima. <laughs> Lima had a particular like is the perfect place for fostering COVID. If you're up in the Andes, walking around in the sun, <laughs> healthy, you're or not down at a beach or something. Yeah, you're yeah, not yeah, getting yeah. it. You're not yeah. getting it. Yeah. And I had this experience too, where um, I I went to to Mexico at the height of the epidemic. I'm like, nobody's sick. Everybody's out. Everybody's out. They're all out. Yeah. And then when I would tell my Montreal friends, they're like, how dare you? How dare you? I'm like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> how dare you go outside and enjoy your life, right? right. Yeah. Don't you yeah. Yeah. This is back to seriousness. Yeah. There's some important yeah. misery going on. Join the misery. Yeah. And, and, um, Okay, so speaking of misery, uh, <laughs> let's. Uh, that's probably the worst segue ever. But I, 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 that's a miserable uh, yeah. segue. Well, the the Mohawks were were pretty miserable with good reason. What, what I want I want to talk about your role, but first I want to just outline to the listeners what I understand about the Oka crisis and yeah. what I what I remember and what I've cobbled yeah. together. Um, there was a in Oka, Quebec, which is on the Ottawa River, northeast of the city. There's a nearby reservation reserve called Ganesatage, and they were going. To, the Oka city of Oka was going to expand a golf course, and there was a, a forest in between. They were going to cut down or whatever that are, that was also claimed by the indigenous population. I don't know if there are formal treaties. I don't know about that. But part of the story is there's a very messy uh, situation where the. Um uh, in some places, it's very clear which where, where the land is indigenous and where it's not indigenous. In but the, there, it was not. There was, a, yeah. it was like a scattershot. Yeah. Okay. So, so there was there was a, there was a claim, and it's not clear if the claim was correct. And I, I I believe that the city of Oka went through some sort of a legal process to obtain the land, but I don't know. I th I think I've read that. So there was some there was a standoff where the the natives there. You know, said we're not going to let you in, and then the Sûreté du Québec, and then eventually the Canadian Army, and just quickly to finish it up, the the general. This was in 1990. 
Um, on the south shore of the St. Lawrence River, much closer to Montreal, there's there's a, a, a reserve of Mohawks, also Mohawks, called um, uh, Ganawage. Right. And they there's only four bridges uh, in, onto the island of Montreal, um, one of which is the Mercier Bridge, and they blocked it for a couple of months. Um, so this was the context. This was in the news in 1990. It was huge. It became an international story. The, the Mohawks, I, I like to tell people that I really respect the Mohawks because they shoot back. Like it, it sounds like it sounds like a very sort of primal thing, but they they have these little things left over uh, in these small pieces of land that that they've maintained for centuries. After you know, this was mostly their territory back hundreds of years ago. Um, for actually not that long of a period, I've I've heard from a historian friend they came up from the Hudson Valley at some point around the time the French were arriving. But put that to the side. They they do have these claims. And they and they defend themselves in a real sense. They have weapons. They have guns on the reserve and everything. Now you, and so right. So there was this blockade uh, at these pines. There was the Celtics of Quebec. Uh, I don't know if you want to add any details, but you somehow got across these lines. I I, I don't know. I, I really want to hear your story here. So let me tell. Let me tell. So it is like a funny um, narrative. So so you know I should explain, and then you probably the same thing is that we're old enough now. To know that the that the uh, per so perception of indigenous people by let's say non-indigenous people has has changed dramatically. That's true. When I was a kid, I remember the cowboys service. and Indians. Yeah, it was cowboys <laughs> and Indians, and also there was we would you were you, the stereotype was of this sad, um, too uh, weak. Uh, and also yeah. a, a, a drunken Indian. That was the stereotype that we saw presented to us. And it was also a reality. You'd go downtown and there would often be a drunk indigenous guy there or something like that. And this was, this was culturally sort of drilled into you. Mm -hmm. And also that, 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 that indigenous people were on their way out. Yeah. That they were just sort of... Sort of a beaten people who are eventually just kind of gone and yeah. will eventually be gone. There's a way the Bayatuk no longer exists. That's right. Was, land, for example. And it was like a big lie that was very convincing. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was... Uh, like, I, I'm, I'm not sure who cooked it up exactly, but it was a kind of... I mean, at it's the same... confluence of circumstances, yeah, basically. Yeah, that's a good way of describing way it. To think about it, right? So, so just by coincidence, uh, I, I when I was working as a newspaper reporter at the Montreal Daily News... I get hired to do this side gig where there's a radio station in Gunnestage run by the lovely group of people who... I listen to it sometimes. 103.7, isn't it? I think it's... Yeah. I don't remember what it was at the time, but yeah. they... they it's a good station. <laughs> yeah. They somehow had gotten a grant or there was a grant affiliated affiliated with, with, with the radio station to hire people to, to workshop them because uh, they're technically isolated. So um, when the teacher asked them, who would you want to teach your these workshops? They were like, Albert Nuremberg. To teach them what exactly? Well, basically, journalism. Because at that point, I was practicing humorous, comic, bizarro journalism. <laughs> and they were that jibe with them. They, we want bizarro journalism. <laughs> so every yeah, month, I would truck up to Gunnasatage, and I would do... Uh, a journalism workshop, and I I loved the, the people that were there, and we had we laughed, and we had a great time. And I never thought that much about. I, I mean, I knew they were Mohawk; it was significant to me. But but um, they're human beings, for Christ's sake. Or, this but, whole but was, idea that any group of people is somehow going to be different by dint of their racial makeup—it's yeah. just I don't know. It's That's weird. right. Just that, yeah. To me, there are people <laughs> that love to laugh and, right. and yeah. love to look right. to find the funny side of things. Yeah. So the, what makes the story strange is what you described. So then the critical point 
The city of Oka wants to expand their golf course literally onto the cemetery, excuse me, of the Mohawk people and their the pines. pines. And so this is a funny pines. thing. At the time, I, and I even I felt so they way. did. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to confirm they did want to actually go into what was a cemetery where there were graves and yeah. stones, and they wanted to dig them up or just or move them over or whatever. Okay. Somehow they're so so that, that's something where it's like, whoa, down. that's bad. But the, the pines are a bit different because the pines of you know it's sort of like a forest and it's supposed to be sacred, you know. I, mean, yeah. I understand. I understand that I'm not trying to make light of that, but yeah, a, a cemetery should be considered, in my view, Especially more a, important. A very right? old cemetery. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry so, so, to clarify that. For so, yeah. so um, when that happened, uh, they set up a physical blockade. The Mohawks did to stop uh, the construction. They weren't trying to stop the police. They were trying to stop the yeah, construction the from coming in. The, yeah. Right. Yeah. So then, of course, when you have when it's technically illegal, the city of Oka then asked the police to come in. Uh, and the police, who are nervous about the Mohawks, come in one day, guns blazing. Uh, one of the students... The Oka police, the, before the South No, no, this Quebec. is the South Quebec. Quebec. The, uh, the, the, yeah. There was a SWAT team. So, part of so, the... So, so, sorry to interrupt. They came in almost like a surprise attack? They just kind of showed... They didn't show up and, and, and say, hey, clear your things? I think what? the reason that it was a bit... That needed to be a big attack is they knew that the... That, Mohawks. Some of them were armed, right? And but that's not that weird. Again, they're they're indigenous people who hunt, and some of them have guns. But there's also this. We don't have to go into yeah. it. The peculiar. Yeah. What is wrong with a group of people having guns yeah. to hunt or to defend themselves <laughs> from other people? I don't understand what's wrong with that as a principle. Yeah. We'll put that to the side for a second. So you know, <laughs> by weird coincidence, one of the people who is at uh, who who is actually a key player who's at the blockade. When the Surte de Quebec comes in, guns blazing, is a woman named Mary David. Mary David still lives in Ganastage. She's one of the students of the workshop that I was giving. And so she records the entire thing. It is the only audio recording, and it is a shocking audio recording where you hear her talking about the, we see the SWAT team arriving. Uh, were you there? No, I was no, not there. She, she She's, there. Okay. She's there. She's there. And... Right. Um, she basically records the audio of the machine guns, the, wow. the, the, the guns yeah. going off, what sounds like people getting killed. It turns out that's when Corporal LeMay gets killed. Um, but it's like a really, you sense the awfulness of it and the shock of it. And, so the uh, Canadian Army was already there. The Canadian Army, no, no, no. It's Corporal LeMay. Okay, Corporal, Corporal LeMay is from the Celtic Quebec. Okay, pardon me. Okay, so, 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 so. I'm so, confusing it with that famous photograph of the young soldier. That's later. Yeah, that's, that's, that's later. a really, that's, a, that's anyone want to uh, listen to this, just Google, you know, the yeah. image and you see this young French Canadian soldier. He's a bit shorter. It's really yeah. powerful. Yeah, image, the face offs. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so, okay, so she records this basically a surprise attack. They come in, there's a big shootout, and, and they make, Corporal LeMay They make dies. a big mistake. That's yeah. both, the Celtic Quebec, I think, make a big mistake because they didn't check the direction of the wind, and they shot tear gas at the Mohawks, but it all came Sorry going, back. Laughing, yeah, going back on them. <laughs> something funny and ironic about that, but anyway. And then I shouldn't they, be laughing. It's yeah, a very serious matter. It is very serious. Yeah, yeah, it is serious. something ironic about that, but anyway. The Celtic Quebec then abandons the scene and abandons their some of their cars, and then you have this, you know, sort of unbelievable scene which unfolds where the Mohawks take, who know heavy machinery, take the heavy machinery, pile the cars up and create huge <laughs> blockades, real blockade. yeah. out of police wow. cars. <laughs> and now crazy. it's on. Now it's on. That's, that's when the Oka crisis okay. really starts. I arrive a little bit later and I end up in the, when the army comes in, I end up behind the lines 
with the Mohawks in the army. I read or I've seen your documentary you made of this. I saw it many years ago. But is it true that you snuck through the lines in the middle of the night? That's yeah. what I seem to recall. No, not middle of the night. Not middle of the night. So it's okay. a very risk. So I would say, like, okay, because this is a podcast a little bit about, you know, the philosophy of stuff. One of the things I've always noticed about life is that the perception of barriers. So if I tell you you can't do this or the fence here, people, like, tend to believe in this stuff way too much. And so what happened was the army came in, they said, we've built the ultimate perimeter. No one will get in, no one get, will get out. And the reason why they did that is they were trying to keep the Canada, the, 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 the media had played up this idea of the dangerous Mohawk warriors so much that there were different kinds of fear. One of the fears was that the Mohawk warriors would get out and attack Canadians. So the army said, we had, we've created a, a huge perimeter no one can get in, no one can get out, where everybody's safe until we negotiate now with the warriors to surrender. So this is a month before the thing ends. So the problem was that the Mohawks, were, of course, were quite upset, and there was a perception that a shootout could happen and people would die. And weirdly enough, you don't think of television as, as a civilizing medium. Because of the nature, because there were live TVs and there were cameras there, the perception was that TV and cameras were keeping the situation safe. Both the Mohawks and the Canadian Army had pledged they would never fire the first shot. Mm. So, so you don't want to be the one caught on camera firing the first shot. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, But then, listen to what happens. Brian Mulroney at that time is Prime Minister of Canada. And for some reason, the CBC decides, decides to pull out the only camera crew that's behind the lines. Um, and this is this big CBC chicken moment where they basically, do you know why it never, I think an odd decision to me from a journalistic perspective, you got people behind the lines. Like it's like gold. (laughs) I mean, that's really weird. Is there some political interference? Do you think is that young enterprising reporter might want to try to figure this out? It was at that time, definitely the government didn't want TV crews in there. I think there was a perception that TV was feeding the crisis. Mm. And so, just on a side note, um, I've become less. You mentioned how the CBC has gone down the tubes. I I think the CBC has been terrible for many, many years. And it's, it's. I mean, you see, in our time, it has almost become a political organ in many respects for the for the Liberal Party. And here we're seeing it could be political interference. I'm not stating that as a claim, but that seems like a very strange thing to do from a journalistic perspective. Unless they, like, I could imagine it, like in in the Balkan War, you had a bunch of journalists. And there's like you know guns going off yeah. all the time. Okay, pull the reporters out. But was it that dangerous? Like, or were they feeding? It just it. I, I, I sort of suspect that there may have been some political incentive yeah, to do the, that. And the CBC is a political organ. Yeah. Anyway, that's a yeah. I, no, I I I, I think yeah. the 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 most likely story would be that the it had become an international event. It was being Making driven Canada look bad, right? Right. Making yeah. Canada look bad. It was being driven by media. Yeah. As well, and, and it was being driven by imagery, powerful yeah. images yeah. of defiant Mohawks, literally yeah. with Mohawks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's great. Saying yeah. up yours to the Canadian yeah. government. So it was seen as a kind of like you've taken 
our land. We used to be the stewards or the owners of most of this territory hundreds of years ago. And bit by bit, our reserves have been chipped away at, you know, over centuries. And that's actually on the record. I mean, Ganawage used to be like half of the South Shore or something. It was enormous. And now it's still pretty big, but it's much smaller. And this, it was sort of like, okay, enough. That was the sense I remember at the time. Like this, we're not, this is where we're stopping that process. But one thing I want to you say, know. well, exactly. And, and not only that, and when you say enough, the reason why Oka is so important, probably like if you're a young person, you're probably tired of hearing about it. I mean, it's why Most, if you're a young person, you may never have heard of it. That, that, that too. Many of my students have probably never, I probably don't know much, very much about it, if anything. But know. it was revolutionary for the indigenous yeah, peoples of North America. And I think for this very weird reason, it's the way it has to do with pop culture. It suddenly cast uh, native and indigenous people in an empowered way. Yeah. They were they standing up for standing themselves, up, shooting back, shooting well, not back, shooting necessarily, but, stand, but you know, just, threatening to yeah. yeah, and talking back, and it was sort of that defiant and powerful, powerful state. I've read, maybe you can confirm this, but I've read that the Mohawks have a long history of doing this. I, I read that in the seventies there was a standoff at Aquasasne, which is a reserve right. on the yep. Saint Lawrence uh, at, at Cornwall, and partly in Ontario, Quebec, and New York, and they shot down a New York State Police helicopter. This was, I don't know what was happening. It was some sort of a thing that happened. But I read that once. Yeah. I remember thinking, wow. And no one ever heard of that. There was, there so, was, so that tells you that this, there was something about this moment that happened at Ganesatage and Ganawage, right? There was, because this thing, I mean, again, someone would have to fact check me on the, the New York State Police thing. I but wasn't sure it was a helicopter, that, but there was definitely a shootout in Akrasasne. And it was prior to. Yeah. The, yes, yeah. Okay. Yes, right. Yes. So, so there was something, and it's, it's not nearly as well known as yeah. the Oka crisis. That's so there was right. something about that moment in 1990 that exploded it onto the world stage. If you want context, way, though, also, right? too, you want to go back to Wounded Knee. Because Wounded Knee was was this the the huge uh, uprising in South Dakota, which had a very similar thing. The parallels are very strong. There was about eighty people, uh, Indigenous Sioux, I believe, who were behind the lines, surrounded by FBI and military, I believe. But the difference is that Wounded Knee, almost everybody who was there died. Yeah, they either got shot, but they weren't necessarily. It's a long time before, though. To no, the no, 70s. That's right, 70s. 70s. Yeah, so time. 10 or 15 years, yeah, but prior it, to it. It was right? seen as about a tragic thing, meaning there was a native uprising, but it ended badly for everyone, and mm -hmm. it wasn't a source of, well, I complicated. For some people, maybe it wasn't a source of pride. Mm -hmm. But then you, have, you also have this famous speech that's made at the Academy Awards. Where Marlon, Marlon Brando, Brando refused to, uh, yeah, that's he refused he. to accept the award, and he sent up uh, a Dakota uh, Indian or Native person to accept yeah. the not to accept it, but to, to make take it, it in his stead or right. something like that. So, it's, yeah. so at that time, the tide is still turned against Indigenous people. But when Oka happens, you have this amazing reversal where suddenly people yeah. are, are much more pro-Indigenous. There's also the, the the differences between the United States and Canada right. in that um, Indigenous uh, issues are much more important in Canada because yeah. much of our territories in very, very remote areas that are at least technically have land claims by Indigenous populations, whereas the United States, there's yeah. not that much of the country that is still... It's funny. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, And totally. also, it's a larger percentage of our population. Yeah. I think it's about 3 or 4% yeah. of Canada's population. Yeah. Is in, in the U.S., it must be less than that, right? So I, It's funny. So you, yeah. I think you're right. So I think it's the nature of, of Canadian wildness, too. I, I heard a great heard a guy in the radio the other day saying something funny, which is he said that, um, you know, people talk about the terrors of t ter how terrible residential school was. And he said, 
I completely avoided residential school because what people don't realize is that there are indigenous groups that are so off the beaten path or so far away from you know highways and roads you, you the rcmp and the missionaries couldn't get in to take away our kids thompson and, highway talked about how he was born in a snowbank and literally in northern manitoba and how his i mean speaking of being off the beaten track and his father wanted him to go to a residential school because all of his brothers and sisters couldn't read or write and his father thought maybe my youngest son can learn you know so it's, it's i think it's hard for people to understand that up until very recent memory there still were indigenous populations living in, a, in at least a semi-traditional way, probably certainly using technology like guns, but, you know, moving around and hunting. And that, I'm, I'm guessing that's not really the case in most cases now. But but just, again, back to the importance of the indigenous population relative to the general population is yeah. higher in Canada than it is in the United States. So that yeah. plays into Oka again, I yeah. think, as well. So, right? so when Oka happened, so, so maybe I think you'd ask me to explain how, my, how you got through the lines. Yeah. yeah so basically yeah. what happens is the, 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 the Canadian army creates this perimeter. They advertise that nobody can get in, in or out. And when you're, we had, at that point, I am working as a reporter covering it, um, as a columnist for the Montreal Gazette. And, uh, what happened at this critical moment is the military is sort of really clamped down. And you couldn't do anything. As a reporter, you're intensely frustrated because it, before you could talk to the Mohawks, you could, you could approach different people and find out like their angle on the story. All of a sudden, everything is only military press releases or press wow. comments. So, so the military would come along and they'd say, you know, yeah. very boring things. They would just say nothing happened on the perimeter today because of our <laughs> fantastic perimeter. And that would be basically it. That would be your report. And so. That's funny. Yeah. So, but, but when the CBC pulled out their crew, we had a motive, which is we, you know, we had been, everyone had been saying up to this point was keeping it safe is the TV, the TV cameras are keeping everything that happened because there's a record of who, sh who would, sh who would shoot first. And there was a real concern that there was going to be like a kind of low level, you know, I remember that war. sense. I remember my mom being very concerned. It was going to be basically a kind of a very violent outcome. It was, it was lucky it didn't turn into that. And also there were these know. practical considerations. The, the, the armored personnel carriers uh, of the Canadian army, which had 50 caliber guns on them were lined up along the highway facing Hudson. So wow. if you had a shootout, uh, Why were they facing Hudson? Because Hudson is is oh, on the okay, other on side. The other, okay, so the, the bullets could stray across. I, I understand, right? It, it could shoot right through, and then some poor kid in Hudson walking right. down the street might get hit by exactly. a bullet or something. So there was yeah, no. Wow. It, it could go, it could have yeah. gotten very messy. Wow. That's so, right, because it's just across the river. That's right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the geography again. Yeah. So okay. So uh, wow. Okay. So 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 the CBC pulls out the the the, the Canadian Army's putting these anodyne press releases out that yeah. are total, you know, PR and we're basically, nonsense. yeah, right. all the reporters are intensely frustrated because we can't do our jobs. And there's a press conference. So the, the military calls a press conference at the top of Highway 344. Basically, they're saying the same things usual. Nothing much has happened. The perimeter is fantastic. Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So myself and Robert Galbraith, who's a photographer who I've often worked with, and we're also, like, we always, you know, we're up to shenanigans. We think, okay, let's see if we can, well, actually, there's a bit more to the story. I, I, I go for lunch right before the press conference and I happen to have a, a little video camera with me and I meet this guy from TVA, uh, Alain Peltier, and he says to me, if you can get that camera in, we'll hire you right away. And at that okay. time, nice. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And, yeah. and, and everyone's frustrated because there's no video coming from inside. 
So this is over poutine, like in a, in a, in a uh, belle province yeah, or something so like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, I think I've been to that one. I've driven Uber up there a fair bit in, the, in that part of the same stash and all that. So I, I know the area a little bit. But okay, so you, you would, you're having a putzin with him, and he says, "Hey, if you, if you can get me some video, then we'll we'll get you. What we'll hire you, basically." And it's a weird right. intersection of my two parts of my life because the only reason I have a video camera is because I'm in an improv troupe. Right. And the problem with the improv troupe is like when you do improv, your show like is great, but it disappears. Nobody remembers. Like you say, "Hey, remember we did that great show?" Yeah. But it's all gone because it's improv. <laughs> so you want. Film them. You filmed right, yeah, just to right, give yeah. a record that it was like, oh yeah, yeah that was a good show. Yeah. And um, so I have an, I have a video camera, and then and we have this conversation. So next thing we know, we're up at the highway three forty four. The primers over there, uh, the military giving this press conference, and Robert Galbraith and I say, okay, let's go for it. Let's see if we can get in. This so we, is daytime. This is daytime. Broad daylight. It's broad daylight. So we we just we do this trick. It's like it's a Boy Scout trick. Basically, the press conference is there. We're just sitting on the grass, and there's a there's a hill, maybe a, a, that's about a hundred yards high. Before there's the forest, which is like it's because the highway has a ravine mm -hmm. on either side of it. Okay. So what we start, what we do is we're because we're sitting there and the and there's really scent they can see. everywhere. They can yeah. see you. Yeah. We just start pushing our feet very slowly. So if you'd been watching us, you'd be saying, wait a second, weren't those guys... But they weren't focused attention on you. Right. So it's, it's they just like... Some... By that tree and now they're by this other tree? <laughs> exactly. Like, what? You know, it's what? happening very slowly. Wow. So we get to the so very cool. top of the ravine after after like 20 minutes probably, and the press conference is still going on, blah, 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 nothing's happening on the perimeter. Now we're at the edge of the forest. We look around, we check at all the sentries. What are they looking? They're all watching the, the press, press conference. conference. Wow. Because the only thing that's happening. So at a sudden moment, we go one, two, three, and we jump in the forest. But now, so, so when they turned around, they must have noticed, oh, what happened to those guys? Or they didn't, or they maybe didn't. they were. Because, also, they might have turned around and thought, oh, maybe, oh, maybe I was imagining that. You know, exactly. Know, the press you know, was like, able to move in and out because we're, we're all outside the perimeter. So there's no, there's no limits at that point on too much so, movement. So let me just recap what you just said. You, you sat down at the bottom of the ravine with your, your photographer friend. Yeah. And you sat cross-legged and just sort of pushed your way up the hill Very slowly, slowly backwards. Inch by inch. Inch by inch until you were up at the tree top, line at exactly. the top of the hill. Exactly. And in the meantime, there's a blah, blah, blah press conference going yep. on and there's like this, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the sentries are all kind of, maybe they're smoking or whatever yeah. they're doing and they're kind of like, they're not paying that much attention to what's no. going on over there. They're assuming that things are cool because they're there. Yeah. Right? They're not thinking. And so you're at the tree line and then at a moment you're like, okay, one, two, three you just stood up and ran into the woods that's right that is just wild okay but it gets it actually gets weirder so then basically what we start doing is we start we know the the area so we know we're going to go straight to where the mohawks are but there's a so so we start very very slowly crawling but we know that they have military what i was surprised about military culture is a lot of interesting sneakiness so one of the things they do is they make they make um, traps all over the place. Well, it's They're, part of their job, isn't it? <laughs> if you're the army, right? I mean, well, I, don't I don't know. More about I mean, it's. I, I mean, it's like if you're going to win a war, you have to. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of like it's kind of like a street fight. Should is it unfair to kick a guy in the nuts? Well, you're street fighting, right? So mil military. I mean, I'm not. To, I'm not saying this is nice of them to do. I'm just saying their job. They were sent in by the Canadian government to say there's a there's a situation going on here. We need you to you know. Just a steel man, their view, but I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, the, what, there's booby traps? Booby traps everywhere. Yeah. So, but it was funny, we had to go very slowly 
we basically walk, would walk along and sometimes we crawled along and then you would see line. like a fishing line, fishing line across. So and what, what would that, do you know what that would set off? It set yeah. off a phosphor bomb, which is huge, a huge. It wouldn't blow you up, but it would be a massive blade, white light that okay. everybody would okay. see. Okay, so the, the objective is not to kill the person who sets it no. off, but to identify there's an intruder at that point. Exactly. I see like a flare going up, like right. smoke going up. Yeah, I got you. Okay. So yeah, we so would, plus carefully we, crawling along, identifying them, stepping over them carefully or under them. I don't know. What yeah, it was, just, just think over them. And also there, there were soldiers everywhere. There were sentries in the forest. The forest was full wow. of soldiers. But we're That's crawling sick. along. One of the funniest parts of it, I just remember very correctly, is that we went behind, we, we knew there were sentries coming, so we went behind a giant rotting log, <laughs> myself and Robert Galbraith. And this is like, this is late, uh, this is our mid late summer, August. You know, and in August in Canada, yeah. um, big spiders, That's especially by the river, big oh water God. spiders. I remember we're crawling ourselves, we're sneaking under the log. I'm looking at Robert Robert's face. There's literally giant spiders crawling all over his face. And we're like, <laughs> because we can hear them sentries. This is like a scene in a movie. I'm picturing it like in a movie with a, you know, like, oh, okay, you can. You're just like biting your It's just so weird right. to see your friend's yeah. face covered in spiders. Anyway, it takes some balls. I, I got to congratulate you we and your friend. Just that's once really we were in, something. once we were in, we were in. Like once we were doing it, we were doing it. It gets yeah. weirder. Then as we were going along, we realize a point where we're not exactly sure if we're doing the following the right route. We get to a certain point and we know that there are soldiers coming. So down there, we can see the back of somebody's house with, with a above ground pool. Okay. So literally what we do is we're like, shit, somebody's coming. Let's go. We go down hide to the, the pool. We go, we go hide. We go by the above ground pool and we hear the soldiers come out of the forest. They can hear us. They know we're there. Okay. So, literally, so they had kind of spotted you like auditorily. They, they could hear you and like, okay, there's intruders. There's something going, going on. on. They're okay. just, I think they were they're just alerted. checking it out. Right. So, so it was a very Charlie Chaplin kind of scene because what <laughs> they, cops. Yeah. yeah, because what they did is we, we heard them come and look around the pool, but it's a circular. Pool, oh right? my God. So we go, a so you're like going this. around, so, yeah, and they go like that. So you go like this, and then then we go the but other way. They hear you, sort of scurrying behind, or I, you know, they must have heard something. They it, might have thought they were kids from the right, house, or too, rabbits, or, yeah, or, or something. An animal, yeah, a dog, or something. So eventually, yeah. we we see them and hear them walk away. <laughs> that is so wild. I, I just sort of I had that image in my head of kind of the soldiers coming into the yard. And then you, and then going like this, and sort of you scurrying around the other side, and then them going the other way, and wow! So that's, I mean, just to to just to put a final loop on that, if if they, you had scurried the wrong way, they would have caught, you. yeah, and then they would Absolutely. have held a gun to you, saying, "Stand up, put your hands up," and you would yeah. have had no choice but to comply. That's right. right. Or else that's they would right. Have shot you, yeah. most likely. Right? That's or right. They, yeah, I don't know if they would have shot you. That actually, anyway. yeah, I, I, weirdly yeah. had the experience before. Um, uh, a few nights before, a bunch of us had gone over the perimeter. When we and and literally they had put a, a gun in against my chest. Wow! But but it was like it, it's a kind of a manageable situation. You apologize and say, "I know you guys are just doing your job," you know. And it was okay. They were these are Canadian Army soldiers. They're reasonable. What were they like? Were they like mostly young French Canadian guys? Surpri yeah. Surprisingly young, like seventeen, eighteen, often maybe and nineteen. French Canadians mostly uh, from yeah. Long Point, or I'm just curious about like Valcour. No, yeah, 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 from Val all around or whatever. Yeah. Okay, anyway, that's a side note. So, okay, so you get to the pool, you do the scurrying, and then the soldiers le lose interest, and they, they go away. So you go we back. Go, we go right? back up into the forest, yeah. and then when we go back up into the forest, we eventually arrive at the famous perimeter, which which is, 
huge observation towers. So they've built, the army's built like these 150 foot towers so they can observe everything with searchlights and everything like that. And what appears to be a 15 foot razor wire fence that's all the way around where the, where the Mohawks are. So, wow. I, I am basically kind of, uh, at that point, we get a little bit demoralized. We're like, I don't know how we're going to get over the razor wire because of razor wire. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Razor wire is designed so that if you, if you slide against it, it has these hooks that will hook into your flesh or hook into your clothes. The idea is so you, you can't go, get over it quickly. And, and, and well, it's also, I mean, you could die because there are literal razors. That I, I don't think it would kill you. Yeah, definitely you'll get little yeah, cuts all yeah, over you. Yeah, that yeah. will cause you to bleed and it's a, kind of bad news. Yeah. So we're looking at the fence and we're going, like, how are we going to climb this fence? Also, without being seen, because by definition, the perimeter is being watched. So uh, we look at it for a second. We look at it. And then we go, wait a second. <laughs> it, it, maybe we don't need to go over the fence. Maybe we can just go under, under the fence. Digging? We didn't even have to dig. We took our jackets off. <laughs> and all we did is we stuck our jackets under the razor wire. We lifted them up. Yeah. Robert rolls up, rolls through, and then I roll through, and we pull our jackets off, and we were in. Wow. We were in, and it took us three seconds. So the, the bottom of the fence was not sort of nailed secure, down. nailed down to the whatever, to the ground. It was just ground there. Like I guess they never, th they never think thought of it that way. They would do that, yeah. Yeah, they sort of thought because they're, it's against an advancing military force right, trying right. to come through or something like that. So, so we just went right in. Next thing we know, we're in, and then we went straight into the Mohawk Forest. And the funniest part of it was... Like the Mohawks also didn't know that we were there, so the, the, the military at no point saw. They might think that you're. I mean, that's dangerous. They well, might, that's, you know, <laughs> that's what happened. Right. All of a sudden, that they saw us, and we were surrounded by fifteen Mohawk women that had wow. baseball bats. Oh my god! And so, it was just wow. this weird god. coincidence that the moment where we arrived, the Mohawk warriors were having a meeting, and they exchanged places so that the women were on the perimeter and the okay. men were in the wow. meeting. And so they were like, and, and we almost got our heads batted, except that they recognized us. They said, oh, we... Are you press? I mean, you play the press Yeah, card, we had our press cards. Like, yeah, and they look, were like, with the media here. But they right. also believed it was impossible to get in unless you had been let right. in by the military. Right. So, so they a, suspected that you were somehow, you know, double yeah. agents or yeah. spies or yes. something like that, which is a reasonable yes. suspicion, I yes. think, on their part. Right? Yeah, it was reasonable. Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, you're, yeah. it's, again, back to the dirty nature of war, right? Yeah. You, you played, you figure out, you know, ways to... So what, so what, so you, you, you pull out your press cards and say, it's okay, and then they, they're suspicious of you. But then they, they, right? they sit us down, we tell them the whole story, how we got through... And they we believe you. I believe it. And we yeah. also show them that we have a camera. Right. And the right. camera is like this weird moment. It's like gold. This is before there were, you know. <laughs> yeah, phones. no phones everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, they're like, oh, you nice. have a camera. All right. So you can actually record things and prove that we're not doing anything. And it shows that that, right. that, 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 that they had sort of, there was some righteousness to their side. They said, we, you know, they, the Mohawks wanted everything to be witnessed, right. you know, right. good and bad. Right. The, 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 the police and the army, not wanted so much. Less transparency. Yeah. Right. So they wanted things to be transparent. They were willing to be filmed and say, look, yeah. you know, we're, this is what we're doing. Yeah. We're trying to defend our lands. That's <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It's something, you know, we're, we're not going to shoot first unless we're shot yeah. at, blah, blah, blah. Which is, yeah. yeah. It's an incoherent statement. But anyway, so, so you managed to prove to them that you're okay and yeah. they're happy with the camera so they bring you in and then you know and then you make the movie which i think i've as i recall there's two movies this was interesting there's two yeah. movies because people often so so there's there's a movie called ganastage 270 years i think i've of, seen that of resistance yeah, that's, that, was, that's, yeah. that was by the nfb 
And that that's where they show this funny thing, because in the movie, they uh, they interview the army. So when we first went through, the army adamantly denied. Remember the press conference they're talking <laughs> yeah. about? They're like, no one got through our perimeter. And not only that, they were like, it's totally fucking impossible to get through our perimeter. No one got through. And then then the, because the NFB, because we had shot footage, the NFB then shows footage of us inside. Wow. And we're like, hi. Yeah, and we're, yeah. and, we're and, inside the perimeter and we snuck through. Right, yeah. So it's a very <laughs> weird moment in the film where the, the military, unfortunately, is caught up uh, being completely wrong. And they're, and they're also so confident. They're like, Arrogant. I can tell Arrogant. you without yeah. the least doubt that no one at all ever got through a perimeter. A perimeter is un- impenetrable. And, Which, and- as soon as you expose your presence, turns from confidence to arrogance or maybe deflated. I, I don't know. It becomes yeah. comic because um, yeah. it, actually the clip is in the film where I say, I would recommend visiting Oka to anyone. It's really <laughs> relaxing and beautiful. And it's like a tourist thing. You know? <laughs> that is great, man. That is- <laughs> Okay, I, that is such an incredible story. So I, I just wonder, I mean, we're, we're moving towards closing here, I think. But I, I just wonder if you had any other observations about that experience because it's such Maybe an Maybe it makes sense to help make sense. I mean, whenever I do these things, I'm sort of like trying to make sense of my life, my weird life. But there is some weird – so let me tell you the end of the story. So the end of the – part of the end of the story is that after I'm inside – myself and Robert were with the Mohawks for this last sort of – Three and a half weeks. It's quite a crazy experience. We set off phosphor bombs. There's some near shootings. Some bad things happen. But at the very, very end, one of the weird things that happens is the, the Mohawks basically put their guns into a giant bonfire. They, they have yeah, beaten Wounded Knee in terms of the <clears throat> longest indigenous standoff. They're now ready to leave on their own terms. They walk out across the razor wire. They put a fence over the razor wire. They crush it down. They walk out. But what happens is there's a there's basically a physical confrontation on Highway 344. It's dusk. The military. I filmed the whole thing. That's when one Mohawk gets stabbed by a bayonet. But there's a lot of violence. People. But it's. I mean, all things considered, maybe it's not that bad. That's my take on. I it. think it, my impression has always been it could have been. It could have been far worse. worse. It, could, right. it could have been basically a, a war. That's, or or you could have had like you know, eleven yeah. eleven people shot. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So there is some violence, but it's it's tempered and. And I myself at that so, point, so just sorry to interrupt, but you witnessed that when and it's they all went out, you, yeah, and you filmed it. And it's it's a very powerful right? yeah. scene in the documentary I made called "O Canada," spelled O K A Nada, <laughs> O Canada. Um, so in you'll see the end and, and the footage, and uh, the reason it's not more famous. The irony, the twist of this, even though that the whole reasons we went went in there is because the CBC chickened out and pulled out their camera crew. That's why we went in. <laughs> the CBC, when we finished the documentary, they say. We're sad to tell you that this does not make reach our journalistic standards. And we wanted to write them back and say, your journalistic standards of cowardice. Yeah, yeah. Um, people can't see me, but I'm shaking my head at just that, you know, that's yeah. like your whole job as a journalist. I mean, it's, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be too hard. It, it must be. I don't know whether they had their reasons. I'm trying not to be too judgmental. In Canada, you, you have what you have gatekeeper gatekeeper culture. So yeah, that that's they can right. that's they can one just way to think about yeah, it. Right? They can just decide yeah. because they're the gatekeepers. But anyway, the so CBC maybe, or the ultimate. Yeah. yeah but anyway, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So so uh, long story short, um, when I when I get out. Uh, uh, some people, the, the military pledges, like there were some negotiations that want, went on 
And one of the, some of the concerns was that the Mohawks did not want to get arrested by the Cité de Québec because they knew that Cité de Québec had been beating people up and might kill people or hurt them or whatever. There was any, you know. So they trusted the Canadian Army more than the uh, way Quebec, more. Quebec the, provincial the, police, just in English, if anybody goes Yeah, at that time, yeah. the police also had yeah. a certain reputation. And so. They've always had a reputation. Yeah. The Cité de Québec going yeah. back a long, long yeah. time. So it's, a, it's a whole yeah, other thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that we're not going to touch. So, in other words, so the Mohawks say, we, we if we are going to surrender, we would like to surrender to the Canadian Army rather than the Sûreté. That's the right? deal. And and yeah. also the press was in on it too because the press also felt that the Sûreté was hostile because a number of press people had been beaten up. I mean, Robert Galbraith... By the SQ? Yeah, had a revolver stuck into his ear. This, let me explain the details of it. It's not that they put a, a revolver against his head. Put it in his ear. They put it in his inner ear and pushed... So it was like a cold. Imagine that feeling, where it's a cold feeling in your. That's a that's a torture tactic, exactly. obviously, and the gun's loaded. I'm presuming, of course. Right? I don't know. Yeah, yet. exactly. So, so even so, even if it isn't, you have to imagine that yeah. it is in that moment, right? Or else it's yeah, the consequences so, are. So we we wow. knew that that uh, it would be bad to be grabbed by the sûreté, and so we had negotiated an arrangement that that the police, sorry, that that the um, reporters would be taken into military custody and so that's what happens when the whole thing ends is chaos and things that the military gra literally physically grabbed by soldiers the soldiers detain us and um they are able to put away and then there's this weird moment a terrible moment for me where they say except nuremberg <laughs> and they're like i'm like what what so everybody nuremberg. can go except you not go but what? at least so they, they they they're all taken away into military custody all the other reporters okay. and mocks Except, and Nuremberg. except Nuremberg. And I'm like, what? What do you mean, except Nuremberg? And, and so they're like, no. And you're the only Nuremberg there. It turns obviously. out that the police had a reason to separate me, which was that because we had snuck through and had caused such a hullabaloo, it was technically considered, or they had charged me with trespassing. Oh, my God. So they were wow. able to sort of say, we we have to deal with this guy. He's not being a journalist. He's a trespasser. and, and They want and, to make an example of you. Or they, they were using any excuse to be able to grab anybody because the military was keeping everybody from the SQ. Can I ask a quick technical question about that? If you're trespassing on the Mohawk land, wouldn't the Mohawks have to be the ones who accuse you of trespassing? Well, who knows? I but also, know. but I've also was, it was the military perimeter. Right. There's a whole bunch yeah, of like, right. like, okay. Anyway, that's on. too technical for this. But yes. anyway, so they keep you behind, and what they explain this to you. So then, all, right. all what happens to me is. I get taken away by the SQ, and the SQ are not dressed as SQ. They, I see these guys who are dressed in military combat uniforms. A little part of the story is that the SQ wow. deliberately put on their military outfits so that nobody would know who they were. They're not wow. wearing badges. They're not looking like SQ. They also even... Shades of Russians in oh, yeah. Ukraine in, uh, up until the yeah. invasion. There oh, were yeah. these sort of dual green men walking around with no Russian flags on their it's uniforms. Same. It's an old, I guess it's an old trick. that, And and and, mm -hmm. and so this is... I got to say it's a fairly terrifying moment for me. So next thing I know, I'm thrown into a police car and my head is bashed against the top of the car. I, I don't know if you know this, but this is like an old trick. If you're a cop and you want to kind of rough people up in a way that is like kind of doable... What you do is you just smash their head against the top, the rim of the doorway, 
Because as they're going into the car. Yeah, because it's just an yeah, easy thing right, to right, do. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. easy. It's easy to do. You're just like, hey. Well, it's almost buddy. a stereotype to be yeah. like, watch your head or whatever. Yeah. Like Jerry it's Seinfeld had, had, a, had, a, had a whole routine about <laughs> yeah. it. You know, it's like, but you're, but you're saying is if no one's watching, they, they shove you in the head. car. Yeah, yeah, they smash your head. And then. So that disorients you. Yeah. You're in the back of the car. You're kind of stunned. And then everything. next thing yeah. I know, I'm in the car with these crazy, angry Quebecois cops who say, who start calling me. They're a mohawk. They say you're you're a mohawk, and I'm like, but you're not. Yeah, anyway. I'm not. A mohawk. Even if you were, what's the problem with that? But anyway, yeah. yeah. So it's, I also said I'm, I actually tell them. So finally, they drive me. No, no, tell them you're a Jew. That, that that's gonna <laughs> help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so next, I'm not mohawk. I'm Jewish. You know, yeah. like, what? That gonna help? They drive me somewhere into the middle of a. Uh, of a forest and i gotta say wow it's a very it was a very interesting moment for me uh i i i, I didn't know what was possible at that moment i i thought maybe this is where i die and because i knew that these were very angry people with guns <laughs> and um so next wow. thing i know they they take me out of the police car i'm handcuffed and there's a very funny so an interesting thing happens these Four cops show up. They're not dressed as cops. They're in full military gear, but I know that they're. I know that they're not. They're not Canadian Army. You know they're SQ. They're right? SQ. Yeah. And okay. Particularly, yeah. here's the joke because one of them was enormously fat, and so <laughs> it comes it up later. No soldier would be that fat, right? It's yeah. like illegal yeah. to be yeah. that fat. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's funny. So they 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 surround Too many me. Donuts or whatever. Right. Yeah. I, I, at this point, I, I know that I've got to say something because it's going to get bad. So the only thing I can say to them is, I'm working for the Montreal Gazette, which is wow. actually a bad thing to say because they hate the Montreal <laughs> Gazette. Because I don't know if you remember the time Aislinn had done a cartoon, which would famously the SQ had hated. I think anyways, it was like an incredibly offensive cartoon, which made them even more pissed off. Okay. So, okay. so that, when I say, I don't recall. So, wow. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I say uh, I'm from the Montreal, from the Montreal Gazette, and I'm actually also you're an Anglo too. I mean, we have to be honest about that. You being an Anglo doesn't help. If you, I, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to accuse French Canadians of being bigoted necessarily, but in this heated context, those things kind of mixing together. The Gazette that you're also Jewish as well, right? I mean, but no, okay, you know, the only I was speaking, I'm speaking in French. My French is not that bad. Yeah. So I, right. I, I introduce. But you myself. have an accent. Yeah, I probably right. have an accent. Yeah, I say, right. I actually yeah. say, I'm working for the Montreal Gazette and TVA because at that point I was working for the at that time was the top Quebec One network, the TVA. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I say I'm, so I'm working for the Montreal and TVA, but before I can finish a sentence, the big guy winds up and punches me in the face. That's a bad... I remember thinking, uh, you know how your brain works? I'm like, I think this is bad. Yeah, right. um, because I, cause like nobody knows I'm here. All these people have guns. They're incognito, and they hate me. That reminds me of that Mike Tyson line. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. It's like that's yeah. you literally experience <laughs> yeah. that. Like, whoa! Now your whatever your plan was with your journalism. Yeah. Well, okay, now I got to go to whatever other plan I can go to or whatever. Right. So, so he punches you in the face. But there's something funny that yeah. happens here. I don't know if you at that time I I, I wear nerd glasses. People used to the, the Mohawks called me Buddy Holly because I look. I like, remember those glasses. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. so when the guy punches you wearing those. This is this yeah. weird magical thing. So I think there's magic in my life. Sometimes I think there's magic in my life because when he punches me in the face, my glasses fly off so quickly that they hit a bunch of other people. So like the nerd glasses, you see these nerd glasses hit that guy's face and then that guy's shoulder. And then they fly and they land on the ground. And then you know what's weird? 
the nerd glasses like land on the ground like this, and it's like they're looking at us. Like wow. it's like I, so everybody looks over at them, and it's like these two eyes. Yeah, and everybody sees yeah. that. You can sense everyone yeah. senses that. Yeah, right? that's what happens. Yeah. So, so I, wow. so I've just been punched. Uh, but I luckily it didn't like connect that hard, and so I didn't fall over or anything. I'm just so it wasn't a there. super hard punch. It I think it was hard, but just didn't properly connect, and yeah. it hit the glasses more than it hit right, me. Right. And then so I just kind of kindly reached down and I pick up my glasses <laughs> with my handcuffs on, actually, and I like kind of like screwily put them back on. So you had you were cuffed in front. I was actually wondering about that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, how well, you I was must able, have been if you were able to put the glasses. I can't remember on. how I was able to get the glasses yeah, back on. Because if like, you're cuffed behind, yeah, it wouldn't be possible. Right? I was just trying to be yeah, polite, anyway. be polite. But then, so but then there's like this weird moment. I don't know. They say there's like a weird pause, and I think because because of the glasses flying around hitting everybody, you know, if you want to get violent with people. You need a kind of a bit of back and forth, right? Mm, yeah. So the guy basically punches me. This an absurd moment ensues, and, and you then, you don't you don't uh, you're not defending yourself because I'm handcuffed, right? Because I, I, I can't punch yeah. the guy back, right? And so there's just like this awkward moment, and I'm yeah. like, thank right. God for awkward moments, because instead <laughs> what they do is they go, okay, you fucking asshole, in French probably. Yeah, they just push me into back into the police car, drive me at high speeds to the police station. I think San Estes Police Station. They do threaten me as I go. And what they did is, like, when I arrived at the police station, I remember it was not fun either because I basically am paraded by a bunch of sentries, cops, all of whom, as I walk by, look me in the eye and grab the revolvers as if to say, if I could, I would just shoot you in the face. You know, that's what they were saying. Um, that's and, a life-changing experience. Yeah, but the reason I, there's a reason yeah. why I'm telling you this story because... Then I end up in the cell. More things happen. Lasagna's down. Other Mohawk warriors are also in the same cell. I hear people getting beaten up. Wow. And it's, it's not a pleasant sound. And then they come around to me and a guy, uh, the same guy who punched me, comes back, opens the cell and kicks me, spits on me, does a bunch of stuff. Um, I can't remember. I just keep telling them. I just keep reminding them that I am media. Right, um, right. Yeah. which doesn't seem that helpful, but it, but it, but I think in the end it was. It probably did, yeah, because they're probably as they're they're angry. There's a the other part of their brain is going, "Whoa, if I go too hard on this guy, the, yeah. you know, the, he may get my badge number. I could, yeah. you know, I could be exposed." Yeah, you know? yeah. So so eventually, make a long story short, eventually I am uh, I am in the in the morning. They drive me to the Parthenay prison. They put me in Parthenay. Back when it's still well, it's actually the SQ headquarters. It was the SQ in Montreal. So they drive right. you all the way to Montreal, Parthenay Street, at nearby near the Jacques-Cartier Bridge. There's a yeah. black building. Those are, those are listeners who know Montreal, and it's got a big Sorte du Québec logo up at the top. And it's right. also a prison as well, right? That's I, what I've heard. I've the, heard it's both. The, the upper floors were okay, a prison, prison, right? And uh, I think it used to be only a prison, and then the SQ moved in, as maybe. I recall. But anyway, that's a side note. Okay, so they put you in there, and eventually, and, suddenly, out of the blue. Like, I just kept feeling like everything was escalating, but suddenly, I don't know, at about 7 a.m., they said, okay, they brought me downstairs, and they basically said, I remember the guy said, get the fuck out of here, or something along the lines of, just get, <laughs> yeah, just fuck yeah, off. Yeah, right, And um, right. so, so you stumble out into the morning, and it's it's morning, and it's sunny. That must have been such an, you must remember a, that. It must have been intoxicating to be free. Yes. Just seeing yes. the bridge or whatever you yes. were looking at, I can yeah. just imagine. It was it. intoxicating. And, yeah. and uh, But the reason I tell the story is this, of course, I, I got... 
I developed PTSD. I um, yeah. uh, for years, I had uh, dreams of these things we playing in my head. The, the guys looking at me holding their revolvers, the punch in the face, the wow. kicking inside the cell. So I replayed it all. And, and, and um, the reason why this, uh, this, I think this is a good place probably to, for us to end, but I'll tell you where the end of the story goes, is that years later, so, so the PTSD gradually went away, but part of what made it go away is I moved out of Montreal. I went and mm, I moved to Toronto. Yeah. I had to get out of town. Every time I saw a cop car, like I'd be with my... I, I was thinking every time you see an SQ or go by the any, building at Fatonet or yeah, if you're in say, stash or something, like, whoa, you know. If it was yeah. weird, it was any cop car. I would just right. be in downtown Montreal with my hipster friends or whatever and any cop car driving by my heart would start beating. I would suddenly wow. start sweating. It was classic PTSD symptoms. Um, and it just made my life less fun. And, and so you decided to leave and go, go to Toronto. It was one of the things. I mean, I think it was yeah. also the time where Montreal was kind of down the dump. So it was a good time to kind of get out. But where this takes you is, or takes me is that years later, I'm assigned to do a documentary for, for Vision TV in Toronto. And the documentary is... Um, uh, about people who dreamt about 9-11 before it happened. It's a crazy, weird documentary. Make a long story short, it becomes a very, it's a really weird experience because I have to go into recreations of 9-11, the way people died, the way people dreamt about it, and how weird this whole thing is. And I get re deeply traumatized by the experience because I keep seeing imagery of people dying in 9-11, mm -hmm. which is something a lot of people went through, but I'm seeing it over and over again part of making this film and so i develop full-blown ptsd i now have high anxiety wow i now have a lot of stress and worry in my life uh and i'm not i'm just not a happy person because of the ptsd make a long story short uh one day i'm on the internet and i see this little ad that says do you ever have obsessive memories that you can't get out of your head like weird things and i'm like hey that's me and uh <laughs> And I have like a free like hour or something like that. And it's, it's like a phone number there. And I thought, call this number for free and I'll show you something interesting. For some reason, I'm not wow. normally wouldn't do, but I realized that that's me. I call the number. This guy gets on the line and says, I'd like to try something on you if this is okay. You can explain your story a little bit. I explain like I have these pictures I can't get out of my head. Um, and then he runs a protocol on me. Uh, over the phone. Over the phone. Later, I find out at the end of the whole experience that it was hypnosis. But the amazing thing that happens in half an hour, these, this terrible trauma, this picture, that movie of people dying that I cannot get out of my head goes away. I, I mean, I still have the picture, mm -hmm. but I stop being traumatized. And then I start, my, I feel this like this cloud lift over my life where I suddenly feel way better and my PTSD starts to go away. And uh, um, that leads me to go, what the hell was that? Hypnosis. Yeah. Hypnosis. And I then a few years later, I get an opportunity to get trained in hypnosis. I realized hypnosis is like this wild, crazy thing. I start figuring out like that. How come most of the culture doesn't know about this? Because it fixed my PTSD. I had, excuse, sorry, excuse me. I had very bad PTSD. It fixed so it. it has applications that maybe are not like for people who are suffering is what you're saying, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, and, 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 and it was so quick. Like it, 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 it really, it really happened in half an hour in my case. And I think That's I, amazing. so, so, so the weird part of the story is I learn hypnosis. I get trained as a hypnotherapist. 
I also discover that most of the world culturally does not understand hypnosis. And then I realize that, holy cow, um, this is, there's some aspects of hypnosis are very mind blowing. A few, fast forward a few years later, I'm at Queens University. They are doing auditions for their TEDx. And I decided, oh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll try this out. So I, I auditioned to TEDx that the committee is, is there. And I say, uh, do, would you guys like to try some hypnosis? They're all hypnotizable. They get completely hypnotized. Wow. And I demonstrate to them sort of some of the amazing things. And right there, they say, everyone else, they say, we'll call you back. They say, you're in. Make a long story short. Wow. I do this TEDx for Queens. Uh, this is now, I don't know. Is that available? Can people go and get that on YouTube? Look yeah. up. Yeah, Look so up. Albert Nuremberg TEDx hypnosis it, is like hypnosis that on YouTube fake? Yeah. Just to is tell hypnosis you, fake? Right. The whole thing that video went viral. That TEDx now has 11 million views. It is the most watched demonstration of hypnosis <laughs> in, so possibly cool. in human history. Even though I'm not going to say it's the greatest demonstration of hypnosis, but it is okay. because of the way it went well, viral. Congratulations. Thank, well, yeah. Part of this, the reason I'm telling the story is like it's a weird, it, 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 like what I'm saying is that life takes you to interesting places. And if I had not been punched in the face at Oka <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then led to yeah. other trauma and then <laughs> gone on a healing path to sort of solve my problems... I would have never made that TEDx, and also that TEDx has resulted in some of the popularization of hypnosis, hopefully for healing people in very maybe, effective ways. Maybe it's had a, a positive effect. Um, I, I want to ask a, a closing question, yeah. because I like to end on a positive yeah. note, and I'm going to take a risk in a minute. But the first thing I would ask you is, have you seen any revenue from those 11 million uh, downloads? I mean, do you get anything from no, that? I'm just curious. Like, no, in that, this particular case. Yeah, it's just sort of uh, your name being out there. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. But, but also TEDx right. owns, owns the rights, own not it, me. Right. Yeah, but, okay. Um, okay, that's but it was no, a yeah. fantastic thing. I've, yeah. I've done No, I'm not making it. I'm just curious if, if you've been that, able to see. Because 11 million, 11 million YouTube uh, clicks might be like, I don't know, 100 bucks or something. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. what I understand about yeah. how YouTube works, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. You know. But uh, what I want to get to to close is, you know, I like to tell my students that, you know, we talk a lot. Of, I teach this course called English Language and Culture. So we do language stuff. It's an advanced level. But we also do the culture. So we look at movies and TV shows and also the origins of the English-speaking world, including Canada. And I like to sort of tell them basically that you're lucky to be born in this country. And this is a good country, generally speaking, whether it's Canada or Quebec. Um, first of all, do you agree with that? And do, because uh, you might not, um, um, do you think that the that there's anything we could say in that direction, even with all these experiences with the Canadian army, apparently acting in a, in a really negative way and the self-aids of Quebec? I'm just, I'm wondering, does that, does the treatment of the Aboriginal population more, more, generally and that particular case what does that say about us saying that canada is a good country and we're proud to be canadians and is there anything positive there I yeah i hope I, there is i think the answer is yes there is let me explain what it is is that again if you compare wounded knee to oka wounded knee almost so so there was a point during the oka crisis where some of the people the the, the leaders sat us down and said at wounded knee almost no one survived Keep that in mind. So get ready. Get basically. ready, exactly. Yeah, and that right. was, I remember this, that was not a pleasant speech. <laughs> yeah, it's basically <laughs> saying you might get shot in yeah. a couple of days or whatever when because, we go out. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the perception, you know why? There's a very simple reason, logic to it. The, the, the lands of North America are contested. They yeah, arguably, yeah. most of them belong to indigenous well, that's people. That's the heart of my question is, 
is the Canadian state invalid because of that? Like, is it like if I own land, I own property in Verdun? I mean, what does that mean for me as an individual? I'm really asking the question. Like, what does it mean for the suburbs around Ganawage and the you know? I, I, don't know. I think I think that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. What, what I'm going to say is that, but to answer your original question, was it a good thing? And I would say. Yes, because the Canadian Army didn't shoot everyone. Right. When I was in the right. SQ, yeah. thought it was okay to traumatize me and punch me in the face, but they didn't murder me. Yeah. And I think it's because yeah. the um, the capacity for uh, state violence is lower here, and you just can't get away with it. Mm -hmm. And 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 the social tolerance for it is is much lower as well. We're, we're not going to let our reporters get murdered. Uh, without it being a big hullabaloo, so 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 I think that because of that, I you know I survived, uh, and it would have been a different story if I'd been in the U.S. Plus, or, even or imagine some other country like yeah. you know the U.S. is actually quite a civilized country. I mean, just compared to say China, right? the threat, the threat. Uh, yeah, it's another way and, to think and, about and it. And even 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 the the re whole reason that I don't mean China is uncivilized, just to be clear. Yeah. But one point seven million Uyghurs in, yeah. in concentration yeah. camps is a sign of uh, state repression yeah. for religious reasons. But yeah, sorry, I just wanted to get that clear. <laughs> that sounded really bad. But go ahead. Yeah. The reason that Robert Galbraith and I didn't also knew that we could probably that we might be able to sneak through the perimeter was that uh, we knew that the that that these soldiers would point first and, and not shoot and not yeah. shoot that we weren't we weren't in danger of being immediately shot and so that made a big difference and that that was Canada versus the US the US had another phenomenon at wounded knee they had a goon culture so goon culture were these like i don't know gangster type guys some of whom were indigenous mm. who had guns who liked to shoot people mm. so a lot of the the activists were shot by goons not by the police wow. or by soldiers there was a bit of goon culture at oka but not much and so you're, you're making a case that um the, the the nationalism if we can call it nationalism the pride that we can feel about being you know about canada is that it's it's a peaceful country that it has less propensity to be wild and dangerous and and people die unnecessarily if i understand you correctly right it's and not like, only that you can make yeah, it an argument peace for, order good government I yeah. think, as, as opposed to right the american concept of like you know uh, more wild freedoms something like that i think i think you can make an argument that 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 the rule of law and that the kind of um you know you you, you get tired of hearing like uh, politicians say, you know, we are a country of laws and rules, but but actually, it's pretty important. Yeah, but you don't, it, you know, it, it's maybe it, it it's maybe cliche and everything, but not living in that can be very difficult with the incentives again. Yeah, right. You go back to the incentives. Yeah, if I live in a very very dangerous environment where the, I'm in a little group of people and there's a bunch yeah. of people over there. My smartest thing to do, if there's no Leviathan pressing down on top of us to go to if we have a conflict, the smartest thing I can do is go and try and kill them first. Yeah. Right? Before they come and kill me. I, I mean, this is what Stephen Pinker did in his book about the better angels, right? So you're making a case, I think, that the, that the, that Canada has a very effective rule of law Leviathan and we've become a civilized population as a result. Is that let us, let, yeah. Let, let, yeah. There's, there's another way to frame it too, which is that I think that what Oka did, and, it, and I think one of the most significant things that Oka did as a crisis was that before, remember we were talking about this, the terrible stereotype of native indigenous mm -hmm. people in yeah. Canada before, 
it completely revolution. It gave young indigenous people pride. You saw these beautiful, empowered, well-spoken, uh, cultured, strong people stand up for their land and their culture. And it, it revolutionized native indigenous culture. Everything that's yeah. happened now that's on CBC radio or whatever, the turning point was Oka that before that, and there's a pretty good argument for saying that it's possible that there were, would have been a continued decline because wounded knees seemed like a continued decline. Mm. And instead now we have um, Canada's a place where we have a lot of indigenous pride and you have the, the country benefits from it. We have like great music and great art and great culture and maybe great, some great industry. I and mentioned Thompson Highway. Really. Yeah. He's a well-known yeah. uh, Cree writer. I believe. Yeah. yeah. And all this is indigen yeah. indigenous based. So, so yeah. it, it seems to me if we could close on this positive note, it seems to me that the, the challenge after World War II for Canada was how to transition from being a British Empire protected country to being a bilingual entity without the country going supernova. So, and then you could update that to the Oka crisis was the beginning of the transition into the tri, the three way thinking about Canada as being Anglo, Franco, or four way sometimes Anglo, Franco, Indigenous, and then all the other, the eight or nine million people who are not native born in the country who also bring a lot into the the, the country's culture as well. And it sounds like you're saying that, that the beginning of, of that process of redefining, I mean, Mary Simon, I think, was a turning point because she was appointed the Governor General of Canada and she was the first one in, I don't know, maybe 60 or 70 years who couldn't speak French. And that, that was, I think that was, and she was Indigenous and she, and she said, I speak Cree, right? Um, so that, that could be seen as a positive thing going forward. I don't know. Do you think I, it could I, be? I, absolutely. I think, I yeah. think, I, you know, I remember I used to wonder, remember when, when that movie Once Were Warriors came out, it showed, it showed how powerful and strong the Maori culture was in, in, in Australia and New Zealand. And I was like, New Zealand, I think. Yeah, New yeah, Zealand. I, yeah. I was like, how come we don't have any, the equivalent of that here where we have so many indigenous people? And the truth is that we do. One mm. of the things I heard Buffy St. Marie on the radio the other day and she said this really thing that really struck me she said people don't know how great our cultures are and so one of the things you learn if you open your eyes and ears in canada let's say as a non-indigenous person is that first of all there's not there's no one indigenous kind of people there's many that's, that's the first fallacy that i hear yeah. all the time is native canadians i mean it's like Inuit and Cree and yeah. Mohawk, it's all these different nations yeah. and national identities. They're, they're all, they're, there's an incredible right. difference in range and that they, and they have different characters and qualities and, and they're just getting started in a way. That their After cultures, a long period of... Yeah, look at of, Inuit culture is fantastic yeah. and vital yeah. and vibrant. And, and uh, so these things are, are, so I would say it is... Oka was positive in the long term, despite the violence for Canada as as a national yeah. identity yeah. unit, right? Yeah, and yeah. I and I sometimes yeah. disagree. I think that that sometimes people point out that there was violence, but I say, yeah, I mean, kind of. What do you expect? Everybody's got guns. Everybody's starting to kill each other. It kind of, all things considered, it wasn't so bad. Yeah. Okay. You know? So the final note I will say um, before I. Th um, you know, we close this completely is I was checking the statistics the other day and my numbers are like, you know, 97 downloads or something for all of them that I have access to right now. Because we're transitioning from arts and opinion. I'm going on to Spotify. I've created this thing on Podbean. So I was, I'm in Podbean and I'm looking at it and, and you can see where people have listened to your, you know, which for me is not that many places, but 
I was clicking on Canada and it had Quebec was the number one and then a couple of it in Ontario. And then there was one in Nunavut. This is what made me think of it where you were talking about the, the, the culture. So I think to myself, if whoever's listening, if somebody is listening in Nunavut, this is sort of a shout out to you because <laughs> it was one yeah. download. And also Nunavut is so big that there's like Canada. It looks, looks like I have like half of Canada because I'm yeah. back on Ontario. That Nunavut, like all yeah. of the north, it's one guy who downloaded. So um, so that's something nice. If that person maybe is listening or if it was a freak occurrence or maybe it's a VPN that's masking yeah. it up there. I don't know what's going on with that. But I just want to thank you. This has been for two reasons. One is it's just been such an incredible conversation. Oh, really? Um, thank you. Yeah, there's that part. Um, and I do want to come back with you again on this exploration of Quebec and Canadian identity because I think it's really important at this point. But the other thing is I just want to thank you because um, you're kind of a name. If you have 11 million people, I mean, I just wanted to just thank you because you didn't have to do this with me, right? So, you know, so just I appreciate that. This is a funny thing about my life is that, um, I mean, I sometimes you think of myself I, either as a filmmaker or a laughologist, but excuse me, around the world, I am much better known as a hypnotist, which is hilarious because <laughs> I'm not – I am a hypnotist, but it's not – I'm not the person who set up. You see, this is – I've just told you the story of how I became a hypnotist. I, if 11 I million people for that speech is I, I, huge. I, uh, I've done two TEDx's on hypnosis and two Idea City. So I've done four – Wow. I've been to, just to give you an idea how weird it is. I got flown to New Delhi. I spoke after the <laughs> Prime Minister of India, and they're like, "Here is a hit, famous hypnotist, Albert Nuremberg." I'm like, "Like, hello." And uh, so you're bigger in India than yeah. you are. In, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, is that yeah? Okay. Oh yeah, I'm bigger as a hypnotist. I'm a, a lot of people know me in India, wow. a lot more than maybe in Canada. That but sort of makes sense States. somehow from what I know about India and the religiosity of yeah. that country. I or think that's kind of, yeah. yeah. So listen, thanks again. Man. My pleasure. Yeah. That right. was really fun. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. 